form the basis for many of the lessons learned that went into the four-hour work week. And as I traveled, I had next to nothing. It was one suitcase, one backpack, and only two books. One of those books was Walden by Henry David Thoreau, of course. And the other book was Vagabonding, An Uncommon Guide to the Art of Long-Term World Travel by Rolf Potts. I still have that copy. It's actually right in front of me. And I still read two to three books a week. But Vagabonding is still in my top 10 list. This is because one incredible trip, especially a long-term trip, can change your life forever. Vagabonding teaches you how to travel for the rest of your life. Tim Cahill, author of Hold the Enlightenment and an incredibly well-known and well-respected travel writer himself, has said of Vagabonding, quote, I think this is the most sensible book of travel-related advice ever written, end quote. Certainly high praise and I think well-deserved. In my own dog-eared copy of Vagabonding, I have notes on practically every page, underlinings, highlights, etc., that range from the tactical, how to pack intelligently, what to bring, what not to bring, where to go, to the philosophical, the Upanishads, how to slow down after a lifetime of rushing and caffeine. I also have a wish list of dream destinations on the inside cover, and that includes Stockholm, Prague, Paris, Munich, Berlin, Amsterdam, the list goes on and on and on. Using the tips that Rolf knows so intimately and that you'll learn in this book, I checked them all off. Some of them, for two to three months at a time, I was able to explore at my own pace with no rushing. Everything in Vagabonding works. This book changed my life, changed my life completely, and I wish the same for you. Enjoy the adventures. May you have many of them. Vagabonding. Noun. 1. The act of leaving behind the orderly world to travel independently for an extended period of time. 2 a privately meaningful manner of travel that emphasizes creativity, adventure, awareness, simplicity, discovery, independence, realism, self-reliance, and the growth of the spirit. 3. A deliberate way of living that makes freedom to travel possible. The epigram is from Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. Alons, the road is before us. It is safe. I have tried it. My own feet have tried it. Be not detained. Let the paper remain on the desk unwritten and the book on the shelf unopened. Let the tools remain in the workshop, let the money remain unearned. Let the school stand, mind not the cry of the teacher. Let the preacher preach in his pulpit, let the lawyer plead in his court, let the judge expound the law. Camarado, I give you my hand, I give you my love more precious than money. I give you myself before preaching or law. Will you give me yourself? Will you come travel with me? Shall we stick by each other as long as we live? Preface. How to use this book. Many travel books can prepare you for an overseas trip, but this book, in sharing a simple, time-honored ethic, can teach you how to travel for the rest of your life. Some books, in offering encyclopedic and often redundant travel information, create the illusion that the best way to plan for an extended trip is to micromanage it. This book, in offering you only the advice you need to prepare for and adapt to the road, encourages you to enrich your travels with the vivid joys of uncertainty. And while some travel books become obsolete after one reading, this book will shed new perspectives and resonate in new ways as your travel career progresses. This book views long-term travel not as an escape, but as an adventure and a passion, a way of overcoming your fears and living life to the fullest. 
In reading it, you will find out how to gain an impressive wealth of travel time through simplicity. You will find out how to discover and deal with new experiences and adventures on the road, and as much as anything, you will find out how to travel the world on your own terms by overcoming the myths and pretensions that threaten to cheapen your experience. If you've ever felt the urge to travel for extended periods of time but aren't sure how to find the time and freedom to do it, this book is for you. If you've experienced travel before but felt something vital was missing from the experience, this book is for you too. This book is not for daredevils or thrill-seekers, but for anyone willing to make an uncommon choice that allows you to travel the world for weeks and months at a time, improvising and saving money as you go. If this sounds like an intriguing possibility, then by all means keep listening. Introduction. How to Win and Influence Yourself. Epigram from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. All I mark as my own, you shall offset it with your own, else it were time lost listening to me. Not so long ago, as I was taking a slow, decrepit old mail steamer down Burma's Irrawaddy River, I ran out of things to read. When the riverboat called at a small town called Piai, I dashed ashore and bought the only English-language book I could find for sale, a beat-up copy of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I proceeded to read as we slowly steamed towards Rangoon. Somehow, I'd gone through my entire life without ever having read a self-help book. Carnegie's advice, as it turned out, was a charming mix of common sense, be a good listener, good advice, show respect for another man's opinions, and antique notions. Don't forget how profoundly women are interested in clothes. Having enjoyed this book on the river, I gave it away in Rangoon and temporarily forgot about it. About a month later, I was approached to write a book about the art and attitude of long-term travel. Since I'd primarily been endorsing this vagabonding ethic through the narrative stories I'd written for Salon.com, I figured I should probably do some research into the structure and format of advice books. Thus, in the process of trying to relocate a copy of How to Win Friends and Influence People, I discovered that the advice and self-help market has changed a lot since Carnegie's day. Nearly every human activity, desire, and demographic, it seems, is now catered to by some kind of inspirational book. The Chicken Soup for the Soul and Don't Sweat the Small Stuff series by themselves nearly required their own section of the bookstore. Standing there amid the shelves and bewildered at the variety, I began to imagine a vagabonding publishing empire. Not just vagabonding, but vagabonding for teens, vagabonding for singles, vagabonding for golfers, vagabonding your wardrobe, the 10-week vagabonding diet, a vagabonding Christmas, baby's first vagabonding, 101 zesty vagabonding recipes. All I ever really needed to know I learned while vagabonding, and so on. In the end, I left the bookstore without picking up a single book. I decided I would write the book in the only way I knew how, from experience, from passion, and from common sense. If at times this book seems unorthodox, well, good. Vagabonding itself is unorthodox. As for the word vagabonding, I used to think it was my own invention. This was back in 1998 when I was first pitching an adventure travel column to Salon.com. At the time, I wanted a succinct word to describe what I was doing, leaving the ordered world to travel the world on the cheap for an extended period of time. Backpacking seemed too vague a description, globetrotting sounded too pretentious, and touring rang a bit lame. Consequently, I put a playful spin on the word vagabond, the old Latin-derived term that refers to a wanderer with no fixed home, and came up with vagabonding. 
I'd almost convinced myself that I'd given hip new phrasing to a certain attitude of travel when I discovered a dog-eared paperback entitled Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa on a shelf of a used bookstore in Tel Aviv. Written by an American named Ed Byrne, the book had not only been published before my travel column hit the internet, it had been written before I was born. And in spite of its occasional hippie-era phrasing, example, avoid your travel agent like he was the cops and go out and find the world for yourself, I found vagabonding in Europe and North Africa to be a fine collection of advice, a level-headed and insightful pre-Lonely Planet take on the nuts, bolts, and philosophy of independent travel. Consequently, discovering Ed Byrne's book was not discouraging so much as it was liberating. It made me realize that, whatever name you give it, the act of vagabonding is not an isolated trend so much as it is, to crib a Grill Marcus phrase, a spectral connection between people long separated by time and place, but somehow speaking the same language. I have since seen reference to the word vagabonding as early as 1871 in Mark Twain's Roughing It, but I've never found it in any dictionary. In a way, it's kind of a nonsense word, playfully adapted to describe a travel phenomenon that was already out there when Walt Whitman wrote, I or you, pocketless of a dime, may purchase the pick of the earth. Thus, a part of me wants to keep the notion of vagabonding partly rooted in nonsense, as indeterminate, slightly slippery, and open to interpretation as the travel experience itself. So as you prepare to listen to this book, just keep in mind what martial arts master Bruce Lee said. Research your own experiences for the truth. Absorb what is useful. Add what is specifically your own. The creating individual is more than any style or system. On the road, the same holds true for vagabonding. Part 1. Vagabonding Chapter 1. Declare Your Independence Of all the outrageous throwaway lines one hears in movies, there's one that stands out for me. It doesn't come from a madcap comedy, an esoteric science fiction flick, or a special effects-laden action thriller. It comes from Oliver Stone's Wall Street, when the Charlie Sheen character, a promising big shot in the stock market, is telling his girlfriend about his dreams. I think if I can make a bundle of cash before I'm 30 and get out of this racket, he says, I'll be able to ride my motorcycle across China. When I first saw this scene on video a few years ago, I nearly fell out of my seat in astonishment. After all, Charlie Sheen or anyone else could work for eight months as a toilet cleaner and have enough money to ride a motorcycle across China. Even if they didn't yet have their own motorcycle, another couple months of scrubbing toilets would earn them enough to buy one when they got to China. The thing is, most Americans probably wouldn't find this movie scene odd. For some reason, we see long-term travel to faraway lands as a recurring dream or an exotic temptation, but not as something that applies to the here and now. Instead, out of our insane duty to fear, fashion, and monthly payments on things we don't really need, we quarantine our travels to short, frenzied bursts. In this way, as we throw our wealth at an abstract notion called lifestyle, travel becomes just another accessory, a smooth-edged, encapsulated experience that we purchase in the same way we buy clothing and furniture. Not long ago, I read that nearly a quarter of a million short-term monastery and convent-based vacations had been booked and sold by tour agents in the previous year. Spiritual enclaves from Greece to Tibet were turning into hot tourist draws, and travel pundits attributed this solace boom to the fact that busy overachievers are seeking a simpler life. 
What nobody bothered to point out, of course, is that purchasing a package vacation to find a simpler life is kind of like using a mirror to see what you look like when you aren't looking in the mirror. All that's really sold is the romantic notion of a simpler life, and just as no amount of turning your head or flicking your eyes will allow you to unselfconsciously see yourself in the looking glass, no combination of one week or ten day vacations will truly take you away from the life you lead at home. Ultimately, this shotgun wedding of time and money has a way of keeping us in a holding pattern. The more we associate experience with cash value, the more we think that money is what we need to live. And the more we associate money with life, the more we convince ourselves that we're too poor to buy our own freedom. With this kind of mindset, it's no wonder so many Americans think extended overseas travel is the exclusive realm of students, counterculture dropouts, or the idle rich. In reality, long-term travel has nothing to do with demographics like age or ideology or income, and everything to do with personal outlook. Long-term travel isn't about being a college student, it's about being a student of daily life. Long-term travel isn't an act of rebellion against society, it's an act of common sense within society. Long-term travel doesn't require a massive bundle of cash, it requires only that we walk through the world in a more deliberate way. This deliberate way of walking through the world has always been intrinsic to a time-honored, quietly available travel tradition known as vagabonding. Vagabonding involves taking an extended time out from your normal life, six weeks, four months, two years, to travel the world on your own terms. But beyond travel, vagabonding is an outlook on life. Vagabonding is about using the prosperity and possibility of the information age to increase your personal options instead of your personal possessions. Vagabonding is about looking for adventure in normal life, and normal life within adventure. Vagabonding is an attitude, a friendly interest in people, places, and things that makes a person an explorer in the truest, most vivid sense of the word. Vagabonding is not a lifestyle, nor is it a trend. It's just an uncommon way of looking at life, a value adjustment from which action naturally follows. And as much as anything, vagabonding is about time, our only real commodity, and how we choose to use it. Sierra Club founder John Muir, an Ur vagabonder if there ever was one, used to express amazement at the well-heeled travelers who would visit Yosemite only to rush away after a few hours of sightseeing. Muir called these folks the time poor, people who were so obsessed with tending their material wealth and social standing that they couldn't spare time to truly experience the splendor of California's Sierra wilderness. One of Muir's Yosemite visitors in the summer of 1871 was Ralph Waldo Emerson, who gushed upon seeing the sequoias. It's a wonder we can see these trees and not wonder more. When Emerson scurried off a couple hours later, however, Muir speculated wryly about whether the famous transcendentalist had really seen those trees in the first place. Nearly a century later, naturalist Edwin Way Teal used Muir's example to lament the frenetic pace of modern society. Freedom as John Muir knew it, he wrote in his 1956 book, Autumn Across America, with its wealth of time, its unregimented days, its latitude of choice, such freedom seems more rare, more difficult to attain, more remote with each new generation. But Teal's lament for the deterioration of personal freedom was just as hollow a generalization in 1956 as it is now. As John Muir was well aware, vagabonding has never been regulated by the fickle public definition of lifestyle. Rather, it has always been a private choice within a society that is constantly urging us to do otherwise. This is a book about living that choice. Part 2. Getting Started Chapter 2. Earn Your Freedom 
There's a story that comes from the tradition of the Desert Fathers, an order of Christian monks who lived in the wastelands of Egypt about 1700 years ago. In the tale, a couple of monks named Theodore and Lucius shared the acute desire to go out and see the world. Since they'd made vows of contemplation, however, this was not something they were allowed to do. So, to satiate their wanderlust, Theodore and Lucius learned to mock their temptations by regulating their travels to the future. When the summertime came, they said to each other, We will leave in the winter. When the wintertime came, they said, We will leave in the summer. They went on like this for over 50 years, never once leaving the monastery or breaking their vows. Most of us, of course, have never taken such vows, but we choose to live like monks anyway, rooting ourselves to a home or a career and using the future as a kind of phony ritual that justifies the present. In this way, we end up spending, as Thoreau put it, the best part of one's life earning money in order to enjoy a questionable liberty during the least valuable part of it. We'd love to drop all and explore the world outside, we tell ourselves, but the time never seems right. Thus, given an unlimited amount of choices, we make none. Settling into our lives, we get so obsessed with holding on to our domestic certainties that we forget why we desired them in the first place. Vagabonding is about gaining the courage to loosen your grip on the so-called certainties of this world. Vagabonding is about refusing to exile travel to some other, seemingly more appropriate time of your life. Vagabonding is about taking control of your circumstances instead of passively waiting for them to decide your fate. Thus, the question of how and when to start vagabonding is not really a question at all. Vagabonding starts now. Even if the practical reality of travel is still months or years away, vagabonding begins the moment you stop making excuses, start saving money, and begin to look at maps with the narcotic tingle of possibility. From here, the reality of vagabonding comes into sharper focus as you adjust your worldview and begin to embrace the exhilarating uncertainty that true travel promises. In this way, vagabonding is not merely a ritual of getting immunizations and packing suitcases. Rather, it's the ongoing practice of looking and learning, of facing fears and altering habits, of cultivating a new fascination with people and places. This attitude is not something you can pick up at the airport counter with your boarding pass. It's a process that starts at home. It's a process by which you first test the waters that will pull you into wonderful new places. During this process, you may even find that you aren't up for the uncertainties and adaptations that vagabonding requires. Vagabonding, as Ed Byrne bluntly put it 40 years ago, is not for comfort hounds, sophomoric misanthropes, or poolside fainthearts whose thin convictions won't stand up to the problems that come along. In saying this, Byrne wasn't being a snob. After all, vagabonding involves sacrifices, and its particular sacrifices are not for everyone. Thus, it's important to keep in mind that you should never go vagabonding out of a vague sense of fashion or obligation. Vagabonding is not a social gesture, nor is it a moral high ground. It's not a seamless 12-step program of travel correctness or a political statement that demands the reinvention of society. Rather, it's a personal act that demands only the realignment of self. If this personal realignment is not something you're willing to confront, or of course, if world travel isn't your idea of a good time, you have the perfect right to leave vagabonding to those who feel the calling. Ironically, the best litmus test for testing your vagabonding gumption is not found in travel, but in the process of earning your freedom to travel. Earning your freedom, of course, involves work, and work is intrinsic to vagabonding for psychic reasons as much as financial ones. To see the psychic importance of work, one need to look no further than the people who travel the world on family money.
sometimes referred to as Trustafarians, these folks are among the most visible and least happy wanderers in the travel milieu. Draping themselves in local fashions, they flit from one exotic travel scene to another, compulsively volunteering in local political causes, experimenting with exotic intoxicants, and dabbling in every non-Western religion imaginable. Talk to them and they'll tell you they're searching for something meaningful. What they're really looking for, though, is the reason why they started traveling in the first place. Because they never worked for their freedom, their travel experiences have no personal reference, no connection to the rest of their lives. They are spending plenty of time and money on the road, but they never spend enough of themselves to begin with. Thus, their experience of travel has a diminished sense of value. Thoreau touched on this same notion in Walden. Which would be most advanced by the end of a month, he posited. The boy who had made his own jackknife from the ore which he had dug and smelted, reading as much as possible as would be necessary for this, or the boy who had received a Roger's penknife from his father? Which would be most likely to cut his fingers? At a certain level, the idea that freedom is tied to labor might seem a bit depressing. It shouldn't be. For all the amazing experiences that await you in distant lands, the meaningful part of travel always starts at home with a personal investment in the wonders to come. I don't like work, says Marlowe in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but I like what's in the work, the chance to find yourself. Marlowe wasn't referring to vagabonding, but the notion still applies. Work is not just an activity that generates funds and creates desire. It's the vagabonding gestation period, wherein you earn your integrity, start making plans, and get your proverbial act together. Work is a time to dream about travel and to write notes to yourself, but it's also time to tie up your loose ends. Work is when you confront the problems that you might otherwise be tempted to run away from. Work is how you settle your financial and emotional debts so that your travels are not an escape from your real life, but a discovery of your real life. On a practical level, there are countless ways to earn your travels. On the road, I've met vagabonders of all ages, from all backgrounds and walks of life. I've met secretaries, bankers, and policemen who quit their jobs and are taking a peripatetic pause before trying something new. I've met lawyers, stockbrokers, and social workers who've negotiated months off as they take their careers to new locations. I've met talented specialists, waiters, web designers, strippers, who find they can fund months of travel on a few weeks of work. I've met musicians, truck drivers, and employment counselors who are taking an extended time off between gigs. I've met semi-retired soldiers and engineers and businessmen who've reserved a year or two for travel before dabbling in something else. Some of the most prolific vagabonders I've met are seasonal workers, carpenters, park service workers, commercial fishermen, who winter every year in warm and exotic parts of the world. Other folks, teachers, doctors, bartenders, journalists, have opted to take their very careers on the road, alternating work and travel as they see fit. Many vagabonders don't even maintain a steady job description, taking short-term work only as it serves to fund their travels and their passions. In Generation X, Douglas Copeland defined this kind of work as an anti-sabbatical, a job approached with the sole intention of staying for a limited period of time, often one year, to raise enough funds to partake in another, more personally meaningful activity. Before I got into writing, a whole slew of anti-sabbaticals, like landscaping, retail sales, and temp work, earned me my vagabonding time. Of all the anti-sabbaticals that funded my travels, though, no experience was quite as vivid as the two years I spent teaching English in Busan, South Korea. In addition to learning tons about Asian social customs through my work, I discovered that the simple act of walking to work was itself an exercise in possibility. 
On a given day in Korea, I was equally likely to be greeted by a Buddhist monk wearing Air Jordans as I was by a woman in a stewardess uniform handing out promotional toilet tissue. I eventually stopped noticing such details as children screaming hello, old men urinating in public, and vegetable truck loudspeakers blasting Edelweiss. After two years on the job, I actually found myself fighting boredom as I crooned California Dreaming with my salaryman tutees in a room full of mini-skirted 17-year-old karaoke hostesses. And on top of all this, the pay was pretty good. However you choose to fund your travel freedom, keep in mind that your work is an active part of your travel attitude. Even if your anti-sabbatical job isn't your life's calling, approach your work with a spirit of faith, mindfulness, and thrift. In such a manner, Thoreau was able to meet all his living expenses at Walden Pond by working just six weeks a year. Since vagabonding is more involved than freelance philosophizing, however, you might have to invest a bit more time in scraping together your travel funds. Regardless of how long it takes to earn your freedom, remember that you are laboring for more than just a vacation. A vacation, after all, merely rewards work. Vagabonding justifies it. Ultimately, then, the first step of vagabonding is simply a matter of making work serve your interests instead of the other way around. Believe it or not, this is a radical departure from how most people view work and leisure. A few years ago, a magazine editor named Joe Robinson spearheaded a petition campaign called Work to Live. The goal of this movement was to pass a law that would increase American vacation time to three weeks after one year on the job and to four weeks after three years. The rationale was that Americans place too much emphasis on work, that all we have to look forward to from day to day is a long tunnel of 11 and a half months of work every year. The leading casualty of all this is our time, said Robinson, that commodity we seem to have so much of back in sixth grade when the clock on the wall never seemed to move. Robinson's campaign was a worthy one, and it found plenty of support at the grassroots level and a fair amount of antagonism in corporate circles. Amid all this publicity, however, I was amazed that nobody was subversive enough to point out the obvious. As citizens of a stable, prosperous democracy, any one of us has the power to create our own free time, outside the whims of federal laws and private sector policies. Indeed, if the clock appears to move faster than it did in the sixth grade, it's only because we haven't actualized our power as adults to set our own recess schedule. To actualize this power, we merely need to make strategic use, if only for a few weeks or months, of a time-honored personal freedom technique popularly known as quitting. And despite its pejorative implication, quitting need not be as reckless as it sounds. Many people are able to create vagabonding time through constructive quitting, that is, negotiating with their employers for special sabbaticals and long-term leaves of absence. Even leaving your job in a more permanent manner need not be a negative act, especially in an age when work is likely to be defined by job specialization and the fragmentation of tasks. Whereas working a job with the intention of quitting it might have been an act of recklessness a hundred years ago, it is more and more often becoming an act of common sense in an age of portable skills and diversified employment options. Keeping this in mind, don't worry that your extended travels might leave you with a gap on your resume. Rather, you should enthusiastically and unapologetically include your vagabonding experience on your resume when you return. List the job skills travel has taught you. Independence, flexibility, negotiation, planning, boldness, self-sufficiency, improvisation. Speak frankly and confidently about your travel experiences. Odds are your next employer will be interested and impressed and a wee bit envious. As Pico Iyer pointed out, the act of quitting means not giving up but moving on, changing direction not because something doesn't agree with you, but because you don't agree with something. 
is not a complaint, in other words, but a positive choice, and not a stop in one's journey, but a step in a better direction. Quitting, whether a job or a habit, means taking a turn so as to be sure you're still moving in the direction of your dreams. In this way, quitting a job to go vagabonding should never be seen as the end of something grudging and unpleasant. Rather, it's a vital step in beginning something new and wonderful. Vagabonding Profile, Walt Whitman Should vagabonding have a patron saint, it would be the 19th century poet Walt Whitman, if for no other reason than Song of the Open Road, his infectiously joyous ode to the spirit of travel. Born in 1819 to a working-class family in New York, Whitman entered the working world as an office boy at age 11. It was here, and at his later employment as a printer's apprentice, that he developed a passion for self-education, as well as an eye for finding uncommon beauty in the common activity of daily life. Whitman eventually moved on to work as a journalist, but his real life's work was Leaves of Grass, a collection of free-spirited verse that grew to more than 300 poems by the time of his death in 1892. As a youth, Whitman was particularly inspired by his daily ferry trips from Brooklyn to Manhattan, which instilled in him a lasting appreciation for the uncommon joys and vivid details of travel. And while his later travels took him to budding American outposts such as New Orleans and Denver, it is this celebration of simple movement and possibility that gives Song of the Open Road its visceral and inclusive energy. To see nothing anywhere but that you may reach it and pass it to conceive no time, however distant, but you may reach it and pass it, to look up or down no road, but it stretches and waits for you, to know the universe itself as a road, as many roads, as roads for traveling souls. Vagabonding Voices. The following testimonies are from real vagabonders who've traveled the road themselves. This is Tim Ferriss, a 36-year-old author in San Francisco, California. For all the most important things in life, the timing always sucks. Waiting for a good time to quit your job, to have that kid, to take a dream trip. Sadly, the traffic lights of life will never all be green at the same time. Conditions are never perfect. Someday, in quotation marks, someday I'll do this, someday I'll do that, is a disease that will take your dreams to the grave with you. Pro and con lists, one of my previous favorites, are just as bad. If it's important to you and you want to do it eventually, just do it and correct course along the way. Fortune favors the bold. This is Jen Miller, a 39-year-old freelance writer from Canada. Your freedom matters more than anything, and you win that freedom the moment you make the decision to hit the road. When you commit 100% to your dream and you begin doing the work necessary to free yourself and move into the new reality of traveling, you're already on the road. This is Cassidy Amick, a 29-year-old advertising account executive from Arizona. My younger brother asked me what I feared more, leaving my stable job of two years in a terrible economy or backpacking through India, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam on my own. That exact moment, my heart skipped a beat. Even though embarking on a new travel adventure across Southeast Asia seemed impossible at the time, it also gave me butterflies, the kind that makes you decide to take the leap of faith. I knew what I had to do. I submitted my two weeks notice shortly after because I knew it would all work itself out in the end. This is Ann Van Loen, a 43-year-old teacher from Seattle, Washington. When we first told our family and close friends that we were planning on taking our kids out of school for a year of travel in the world, we received more than our share of sideways looks and skeptical questions. 
We persevered, though, and soon most of our friends were won over by our positive focus and enthusiasm. Don't let yourself get talked out of your travel dream. Leaving actually turned out to be much harder than the travel experience. Just go. Quotes for Chapter 2 First is from Henry David Thoreau and Walden. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. He will put some things behind, will pass an invisible boundary. New, universal, and more liberal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within him. The Supreme Teaching of the Upanishads And they say in truth that a man is made of desire. As his desire is, so is his faith. As his faith is, so are his works. As his works are, so he becomes. Ed Byrne, Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa Wanting to travel reflects a positive attitude. You want to see, to grow in experience, and presumably to become more whole as a human being. Vagabonding takes this a step further. It promotes the chances of sustaining and strengthening this positive attitude. As a vagabond, you begin to face your fears now and then instead of continuously sidestepping them in the name of convenience. You build an attitude that makes life more rewarding, which in turn makes it easier to keep doing it. It's called positive feedback, and it works. Edward Abbey, Desert Solitaire We need the possibility of escape as surely as we need hope. Without it, the life of the cities would drive all men into crime, or drugs, or psychoanalysis. Tim Cahill from Hold the Enlightenment A lot of us first aspired to far-ranging travel and exotic adventure early in our teens. These ambitions are, in fact, adolescent in nature, which I find an inspiring idea. Thus, when we allow ourselves to imagine as we once did, we know with a sudden jarring clarity that if we don't go right now, we're never going to do it, and we'll be haunted by our unrealized dreams and know that we have sinned against ourselves gravely. Thomas Merton, from the Asian Journal of Thomas Merton. And so I stand among you as one that offers a small message of hope, that first, there are always people who dare to seek on the margin of society, who are not dependent on social acceptance, not dependent on social routine, and prefer a kind of free-floating existence. Tip Sheet, Chapter 2 Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for resources related to sabbaticals, unpaid leave and quitting your job, finding jobs and careers overseas, international employment references, and overseas dangers. Before we jump to the next chapter, I'd like to add a few comments about overseas dangers. One of the big issues these days among potential vagabonders is whether or not it's safe to travel overseas anymore. The short answer to this concern is that traveling around the world is statistically no more dangerous than traveling across your hometown. Indeed, as with home, most dangers and annoyances on the road revolve around sickness, theft, and accidents, things I'll discuss in Chapter 7, not political violence or terrorism. Should political violence or terrorism capture headlines, however, the secret to avoiding it is not to cancel your travel plans, but simply to keep yourself informed. Just because the evening news shows unrest in a southern Lebanon refugee camp, for instance, doesn't mean it's dangerous to visit Beirut or Galilee, or for that matter, other parts of southern Lebanon. 
By that same token, the evening news might habitually ignore the political situation in West Africa, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's safe to visit Sierra Leone or Liberia. Obviously then, planning and monitoring your destinations will require that you look past the evening news. Online resources such as U.S. State Department travel warnings and a website called World Travel Watch make good starting points for assessing the current safety situation in any given part of the world. Even if you accidentally find yourself in a dangerous area as you travel, the key to keeping safe is knowing and talking to the locals, who can tell you where specific dangers lurk, patronizing mom and pop businesses, which are never targeted in political attacks, avoiding a loud or flashy appearance, this includes dogmatic debates of religion and politics, and traveling outside of predictable tourist patterns, which are easier to target by troublemakers. In short, the engaged and humbled attitude of vagabonding will naturally lend to a safer journey. Should the security situation seem especially tense in a region, go a step further and avoid hangouts that cater exclusively to foreigners, expat bars, hard rock cafes, and the like. Stay away from public demonstrations and crowds, this includes small bands of drunks and rabble-rousers, and don't share your travel plans or lodging arrangements with strangers. On a final note, Keep in mind that most people in the world see you not as a political entity or an appendage of the great Satan, but as a guest to their country. Even if they vehemently disagree with your country's policies and practices, they will invariably honor your individuality and regard you with hospitality and respect. You'd never guess this by watching the evening news, of course, but travel allows you to experience the nuances of the world in a way that mass media never will. Remember for these resources, go to vagabonding.net slash resources. Chapter 3. Keep it simple. In March 1989, the Exxon Valdez struck a reef off the coast of Alaska, resulting in the largest oil spill in U.S. history. Initially viewed as an ecological disaster, this catastrophe did wonders to raise environmental awareness among average Americans. As television images of oil-choked sea otters and dying shorebirds were beamed across the country, pop environmentalism grew into a national craze. Instead of conserving more and consuming less, however, many Americans sought to save the Earth by purchasing environmental products. Energy-efficient home appliances flew off the shelves, health food sales boomed, and reusable canvas shopping bags became vogue in strip malls from Jacksonville to Jackson Hole. Credit card companies began to earmark a small percentage of profits for conservation groups, thus encouraging consumers to help the environment by striking off on idealistic shopping binges. Such shopping sprees and health food purchases did very little to improve the state of the planet, of course, but most people managed to feel a little better about the situation without having to make any serious lifestyle changes. This notion, that material investment is somehow more important to life than personal investment, is exactly what leads so many of us to believe that we could never afford to go vagabonding. The more our life options get paraded around as consumer options, the more we forget that there's a difference between the two. Thus, having convinced ourselves that buying things is the only way to play an active role in the world, we fatalistically conclude that we'll never be rich enough to purchase a long-term travel experience. Fortunately, the world need not be a consumer product. As with environmental integrity, Long-term travel isn't something you buy into, it's something you give yourself. Indeed, the freedom to go vagabonding has never been determined by income level. It's found through simplicity, the conscious decision of how to use what income you have. And contrary to popular stereotypes, seeking simplicity doesn't require that you become a monk 
or a subsistence forager or a wild-eyed revolutionary. Nor does it mean that you must unconditionally avoid the role of consumer. Rather, simplicity merely requires a bit of personal sacrifice, an adjustment of your habits and routines within consumer society itself. At times, the biggest challenge in embracing simplicity will be the vague feeling of isolation that comes with it, since private sacrifice doesn't garner as much attention in the frenetic world of mass culture. Jack Kerouac's legacy as a cultural icon is a good example of this. Arguably the most famous American vagabonder of the 20th century, Kerouac vividly captured the epiphanies of hand-to-mouth travel in books like On the Road and Lonesome Traveler. In the Dharma Bums, he wrote about the joy of living with people who blissfully ignore the general demand that they consume production and therefore have to work for the privilege of consuming all that crap they really didn't want. General junk you always see a week later in the garbage anyway. All of it impersonal in a system of work, produce, consume. Despite his observance of material simplicity, however, Kerouac found that his personal life, the life that had afforded him the freedom to travel, was soon overshadowed by a more fashionable and marketable public vision of his travel lifestyle. Convertible cars, jazz records, marijuana, and later Gap khakis ultimately came to represent the mystical it that he and Neil Cassidy sought in On the Road. As his beat cohort William S. Burroughs was to point out years after Jack's death, part of Kerouac's mystique became inseparable from the idea that he opened up a million coffee bars and sold a million pairs of Levi's to both sexes. In some ways, of course, coffee bars, convertibles, and marijuana are all part of what made travel appealing to Kerouac's readers. That's how marketing, intentional and otherwise, works. But these aren't the things that made travel possible for Kerouac. What made travel possible was that he knew that neither self nor wealth can be measured in terms of what you consume or own. Even the downtrodden souls on the fringes of society, he observed, had something the rich didn't. Time. This notion, the notion that riches don't necessarily make you wealthy, is as old as society itself. The ancient Hindu Upanishads refer disdainfully to that chain of possessions wherewith men bind themselves and beneath which they sink. Ancient Hebrew scriptures declare that whoever loves money never has money enough. Jesus noted that it's pointless for a man to gain the whole world yet lose his very self, and the Buddha whimsically pointed out that seeking happiness in one's material desires is as absurd as suffering because a banana tree will not bear mangoes. Despite several millennia of such warnings, however, there is still an overwhelming social compulsion, an insanity of consensus, if you will, to get rich from life rather than to live richly, to do well in the world instead of living well. And in spite of the fact that America is famous for its unhappy rich people, most of us remain convinced that just a little more money will set life right. In this way, the messianic metaphor of modern life becomes the lottery, the outside chance that the right odds will come together and liberate us from financial worries once and for all. Fortunately, we were all born with winning tickets, and cashing them in is a simple matter of altering our cadence as we walk through the world. Vagabonding sage Ed Byrne knew as much. By switching to a new game, which in this case involves vagabonding, time becomes the only possession, and everyone is equally rich in it by biological inheritance. Money, of course, is still needed to survive, but time is what you need to live. So, save what little money you possess to meet the basic survival requirements, but spend your time lavishly in order to create the life values that make the fire worth the candle. Dig? Dug. And the best part is, 
As you cultivate your future with rich fields of time, you are also sowing the seeds of personal growth that will gradually bloom as you travel into the world. In a way, simplifying your life for vagabonding is easier than it sounds. This is because travel by its very nature demands simplicity. If you don't believe it, just go home and try stuffing everything you own into a backpack. This will never work because no matter how meagerly you live at home, you can't match the scaled-down minimalism that travel requires. You can, however, set the process of reduction and simplification into motion while you're still at home. This is useful on several levels. Not only does it help you to save travel money, but it helps you realize how independent you are of your possessions and your routines. In this way, it prepares you mentally for the realities of the road and makes travel a dynamic extension of the life alterations you began at home. As with, say, giving up coffee, simplifying your life will require a somewhat difficult consumer withdrawal period. Fortunately, your impending travel experience will give you a very tangible and rewarding long-term goal that helps ease the discomfort. Over time, as you reap the sublime rewards of simplicity, you will begin to wonder how you ever put up with such a cluttered life in the first place. On a basic level, there are three general methods to simplifying your life. Stopping expansion, reining in your routine, and reducing clutter. The easiest part of this process is stopping expansion. This means that, in anticipation of vagabonding, you don't add any new possessions to your life, regardless of how tempting they might seem. Naturally, this rule applies to things like cars and home entertainment systems, but it also applies to travel accessories. Indeed, one of the biggest mistakes people make in anticipation of vagabonding is to indulge in a vicarious travel buzz by investing in water filters, sleeping bags, and travel boutique wardrobes. In reality, vagabonding runs smoothest on a bare minimum of gear, and even multi-year trips require little initial investment beyond sturdy footwear and a dependable travel bag or backpack. While you're curbing the material expansion of your life, you should also take pains to rein in the unnecessary expenses of your weekly routine. Simply put, this means living more humbly, even if you aren't humble, and investing the difference into your travel fund. Instead of eating at restaurants, for instance, cook at home and pack a lunch for school or work. Instead of partying at nightclubs and going out to movies or pubs, entertain at home with friends or family. Wherever you see the chance to eliminate an expensive habit, take it. The money you save as a result will pay off handsomely in travel time. In this way, I ate a lot of bologna sandwiches and missed out on a lot of grunge-era Seattle nightlife while saving up for a vagabonding stint after college, but the ensuing eight months of freedom on the roads of North America more than made up for it. Perhaps the most challenging step in keeping things simple is reducing clutter, downsizing what you already own. As Thoreau observed, downsizing can be the most vital step in winning the freedom to change your life. I have in my mind that most seemingly wealthy but most terribly impoverished class of all, he wrote in Walden, who have accumulated dross but do not know how to use it or get rid of it and thus have forged their own golden or silver fetters. How you reduce your dross in anticipation of travel will depend on your situation. If you're young, odds are you haven't accumulated enough to hold you down, which incidentally is a big reason why so many vagabonders tend to be young. If you're not so young, you can recreate the carefree conditions of youth by jettisoning the things that aren't necessary to your basic well-being. For much of what you own, garage sales and online auctions can do wonders to unclutter your life and score you an extra bit of cash to boot. Homeowners can win their travel freedom by renting out their houses. Those who rent accommodations can sell, store, or lend out the things that might bind them to one place. An additional consideration in life simplification is debt. As Laurel Lee Riley observed in Godspeed, 
Cities are full of those who have been caught in monthly payments for avocado green furniture sets. Thus, if at all possible, don't let avocado green furniture sets, or any other seemingly innocuous indulgence, dictate the course of your life by forcing you into ongoing cycles of production and consumption. If you're already in debt, work your way out of it and stay out. If you have a mortgage or other long-term debt, devise a situation, such as property rental, that allows you to be independent of its obligations for long periods of time. Being free from debt's burden simply gives you more vagabonding options, and, for that matter, more life options. As you simplify your life and look forward to spending your new wealth of time, you're likely to get a curious reaction from your friends and family. On one level, they will express enthusiasm for your impending adventures. But on another level, they might take your growing freedom as a subtle criticism of their own way of life. Because your fresh worldview might appear to call their own values into question, or at least force them to consider those values in a new light, they will tend to write you off as irresponsible and self-indulgent. Let them. As I've said before, vagabonding is not an ideology, a balm for societal ills, or a token of social status. Vagabonding is, was, and always will be a private undertaking, and its goal is to improve your life not in relation to your neighbors, but in relation to yourself. Thus, if your neighbors consider your travels foolish, don't waste your time trying to convince them otherwise. Instead, the only sensible reply is to quietly enrich your life with the myriad opportunities that vagabonding provides. Interestingly, some of the harshest responses I've received in reaction to my vagabonding life have come while traveling. Once at Armageddon, the site in Israel, not the battle at the end of the world, I met an American aeronautical engineer who was so tickled at having negotiated five days of free time into a Tel Aviv consulting trip that he spoke of little else as we walked through the ruined city. When I eventually mentioned that I'd been traveling around Asia for the past 18 months, he looked at me as if I'd slapped him. You must be filthy rich, he said acidly. Or maybe, he said, giving me the once-over, your mommy and daddy are. I tried to explain how two years of teaching English in Korea had funded my freedom, but the engineer would have none of it. Somehow he couldn't accept that two years of any kind of honest work could have funded 18 months and counting of travel. He didn't even bother to stick around for the real kicker. In those 18 months of travel, my day-to-day -day costs were significantly cheaper than they would have been back in the United States. The secret to my extraordinary thrift was neither secret nor extraordinary. I had tapped into that vast well of free time simply by foregoing a few comforts as I traveled. Instead of luxury hotels, I slept in clean, basic hostels and guest houses. Instead of flying from place to place, I took local buses, trains, and share taxis. Instead of dining at fancy restaurants, I ate food from street vendors and local cafeterias. Occasionally, I traveled on foot, slept out under the stars, and dined for free at the stubborn insistence of local hosts. In what ultimately amounted to over two years of travel in Asia, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East, my lodging averaged out to just under $5 a night, my meals cost well under a dollar a plate, and my total expenses rarely exceeded $1,000 a month. Granted, I have simple tastes and I didn't linger long in expensive places, but there was nothing exceptional in the way I traveled. In fact, entire multinational backpacker circuits, not to mention budget guidebook publishing empires, have been created by the simple abundance of such travel bargains in the developing world. For what it costs to fill your gas tank back home, for example, you can take a train from one end of China to the other. For the price of a home-delivered pepperoni pizza, you can eat great meals for a week in Brazil. And for a month's rent in any major American city, you can spend a year in a beach hut in Indonesia.
Moreover, even the industrialized parts of the world host enough hostile networks, bulk transportation discounts, and camping opportunities to make long-term travel affordable. Ultimately, you may well discover that vagabonding on the cheap becomes your favorite way to travel, even if given more expensive options. Indeed, not only does simplicity save you money and buy you time, it also makes you more adventuresome, forces you into sincere contact with locals, and allows you the independence to follow your passions and curiosities down exciting new roads. In this way, simplicity, both at home and on the road, affords you the time to seek renewed meaning in an oft-neglected commodity that can't be bought at any price, life itself. Vagabonding Profile, Henry David Thoreau Although Henry David Thoreau never traveled very far outside of New England, he promoted an uncommon view of wealth that is essential to vagabonding. Considering all material possessions beyond basic necessities to be an obstacle to true living, he espoused the idea that wealth is found not in what you own, but in how you spend your time. A man is rich, he wrote in Walden, in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone. Born in Concord, Massachusetts in 1817, Thoreau trained as an engineer at Harvard, although he never could pinpoint his true profession. At various times, he called himself a schoolteacher, a surveyor, a farmer, a house painter, a pencil maker, a writer, and sometimes a poe-taster. It is as a writer that he is best remembered, particularly for his book Walden, the vivid account of his one-year experiment in anti-materialist living. At Walden Pond, Thoreau lived in such a way that he only had to work six weeks a year, eating vegetables from his garden and fish from the pond, living in a tight, light, and clean house that he built himself, avoiding unnecessary expenses, including fresh meat, fancy clothes, and coffee. This left him with ample time to indulge in the things he loved best, reading, writing, walking, thinking, and observing nature. In this way, through simplicity, Thoreau was able to find true wealth. Superfluous wealth can buy superfluities only, he wrote. Money is not required to buy one necessity of the soul. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 3 this is Derek Orth, a 28-year-old voice actor from Florida. Here's a fun, money-saving trick I use. I give up some luxury at home and instead visualize an experience I could only have on the road. Instead of going out for steak, I picture the sushi I could be eating in Osaka. Instead of buying another guitar, I envision scuba diving a coral reef in the Philippines. The imagination is a powerful tool. I use it to feast on all the possibilities awaiting me on my trip, and my wallet never leaves my pocket. This is Noah Van Loen, a 45-year-old consultant from Seattle, Washington. We embraced, and even enjoyed, the process of getting rid of all of the stuff that we had accumulated during 15 years of homeownership, marriage, and raising kids. Selling, donating, and just Disposing of material possessions frees you to focus on what's really important. Hint, it's not the stuff. We made a resolution not to buy new things and thought long and hard about how we were spending our money. This is Meg Schofield, a 44-year-old working for the federal government in Washington, D.C. Getting rid of the car became the bedrock of our simplicity commitment at home. It felt radical in this city known for its opulence and ego. We weren't prepared for the wistful reactions of our neighbors and friends when we explained our new car-free existence. We wish we could do that, they said, followed by a profuse list of excuses. 
Too many activities, public transportation's lack of dependability, the distance of shopping opportunities. As for us, we're learning our neighborhood in an intimate way only possible by walking the streets every day in all moods and weather. The money that we save each month goes to our future fund so we can soon explore neighborhoods in faraway places. This is Johnny Ward, a travel blogger and a lifestyle designer from Ireland. When you're actually traveling, you'll realize you don't need much stuff to feel fulfilled. If you can bring that mindset forward a few months, that attitude will save you a fortune at home. Cut out the noise, focus on the goal. Quotes, Chapter 3 From an ancient Sanskrit poem, From all your herds a cup or two of milk, From all your granaries a loaf of bread, In all your palace only half a bed, Can a man use more, and do you own the rest? John Muir from Kindred and Related Spirits Our crude civilization engenders a multitude of wants. Our forefathers forged chains of duty and habit, which bind us notwithstanding our boasted freedom, and we ourselves in desperation add link to link, groaning and making medicinal laws for relief. Walt Whitman from Song of the Open Road Henceforth I ask not good fortune, I myself am good fortune. Henceforth I whimper no more, postpone no more, need nothing. Pico Iyer from Why We Travel Travel can be a kind of monasticism on the move. On the road we often live more simply, with no more possessions than we can carry, and surrendering ourselves to chance. This is what Camus meant when he said that what gives value to travel is fear, disruption, in other words, or emancipation from circumstance, and all the habits behind which we hide. Bertrand Russell from The Conquest of Happiness Very many people spend money in ways quite different from those that their natural tastes would enjoin, merely because the respect of their neighbors depends upon the possession of a good car and their ability to give good dinners. As a matter of fact, any man who can obviously afford a car but genuinely prefers travels or a good library will in the end be much more respected than if he had behaved exactly like everyone else. Ralph Waldo Emerson from Self-Reliance It is easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It is easy in solitude to live after your own. But the great man is he who in the midst of the crowd keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. Ralph Bagnold from Libyan Sands. When I was very young, a big financier once asked me what I would like to do, and I said, to travel. Ah, he said, it is very expensive. One must have a lot of money to do that. He was wrong. For there are two types of travelers, the comfortable voyager, round whom a cloud of voracious expenses hums all the time, and the man who shifts for himself and enjoys the little discomforts as a change from life's routine. Tip Sheet, Chapter 3 Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for up-to-date resources on lifestyle simplicity, budgeting and money management, and vagabonding for seniors and families. Before we move on to the next chapter, a few notes about vagabonding for seniors and families. Statistically, most vagabonders are 18 to 35 years old and childless, but this doesn't mean that youthful independence is a prerequisite for long-term travel. Indeed, some of the most dynamic vagabonders are the adventurous elder and family travelers who defy stereotype and set out to discover the world for themselves. Senior Vagabonders 
On a general level, all the advice in this book, from choosing a guidebook to interacting with local cultures, applies just as readily to older travelers as younger ones. Senior vagabonders might occasionally seek out more creature comforts than their younger counterparts, but the same basic rules and freedoms of independent travel apply. And since most cultures treat elders with uncommon interest and respect, older travelers invariably wander into charming adventures and friendships on the road. Naturally, extra care should be taken in tourist zones, as I talk about in Chapter 6, where unscrupulous touts and scam artists often see seniors as easy marks. Some older vagabonders might feel a little intimidated at the outset of their travels, since independent travel is often cast in a youth culture vernacular. One way to offset this anxiety is to join up with a brief package tour or volunteer vacation program at the outset of your journey. Given a good attitude and a proper level of awareness, you'll feel much more confident about independent travel after these initial days or weeks in your host culture. Vagabonding with Children Parenthood may be an adventure in and of itself, but this doesn't mean you have to limit the adventure to your hometown. For children of any age, and 6- to 14-year-olds in particular, an extended journey into the world can be an unparalleled educational experience that inspires new interests and passions. And, while the task of parenting on the road can sometimes be a challenge for the grown-ups, the singular adventures and collective memories of family vagabonding will more than make up for it. Again, resources for all of this can be found at vagabonding.net slash resources. Chapter 4. Learn and Keep Learning one of the best travel parables to come from world history involves a certain Christopher Columbus who, as we all learned in grade school, sailed the ocean blue in the year 1492. That the legendary Italian navigator ever resolved to seek the east by sailing west says a lot about his gumption, but it also shows that he'd done his homework. Using classic geographical texts written by ancient Greek and Latin authors, as well as a copy of Marco Polo's travels, he had good reason to think his westbound quest for Asia might work. After his initial voyages proved both promising and perplexing, Columbus's third expedition finally sighted land that was unmistakably continental. Instead of confronting uncertainty, however, instead of wading ashore to verify just what he had found, Columbus rushed back to an outpost on Hispaniola and concocted a triumphant letter to send back to Spain. Rather than using empirical evidence to prove that this was China or India, he went back to the Greek and Latin geographers who'd inspired him in the first place. Quoting passage after passage from the erudite ancients, he confidently concluded that he had at last sighted the elusive Asian mainland. As any bright eight-year-old will tell you, however, his grand assumption was a good hemisphere off. The example of Columbus can teach us a couple of vital lessons about vagabonding. First, it shows how doing your pre-trip homework, that is, harnessing the knowledge of those who examine the world before you, can lead you to fabulous new horizons. By that same token, however, you will never be able to truly appreciate the unexpected marvels of travel if you rely too heavily on your homework and ignore what is right before your eyes. Thus, you need to strike a balance between tapping the inspiration that compelled you to hit the road and knowing that nothing short of travel itself can prepare you for the new worlds that await. The reason vagabonding is so appealing is that it promises to show you the destinations and experiences that you've dreamed about, but the reason vagabonding is so addictive is that, joyfully, you'll never quite find what you dreamed. Indeed, the most vivid travel experiences usually find you by accident, and the qualities that will make you fall in love with the place are rarely the features that took you there. 
In this way, vagabonding is not just a process of discovering the world, but a way of seeing, an attitude that prepares you to find the things that you weren't looking for. The discoveries that come with travel, of course, have long been considered the purest form of education a person can acquire. The world is a book, goes a saying attributed to St. Augustine, and those who do not travel read only one page. Vagabonding is all about delving into the thick plots the world promises, and the more you read, so to speak, the better you position yourself to keep reading. However, even if you're stuck on the first paragraph, it's still important to ready yourself for the pages to come. After all, you don't stand to grow much from your travels if you just skim your way through the world at random. Just how extensively you should prepare yourself before vagabonding is a topic of much debate among travelers. Many experienced vagabonders believe that less preparation is actually better in the long run. The naturalist John Muir used to say that the best way to prepare for a trip was to throw some tea and bread into an old sack and jump over the back fence. Not only does such bold spontaneity add a spark of adventure to your travels, long-time travelers will argue, but it also lessens the kind of prejudices and preconceptions that might jade your experience. It's important to keep in mind, however, that experienced vagabonders already possess the confidence, faith, and know-how to make such spontaneous travel work. They know how easy the travel basics are and, using their passions, instincts, and a little local information, they begin their immersion education the moment they touch down at their destinations. Personally, while I respect the spontaneous approach, I prefer the hum of excitement that comes with carefully preparing at home for the trip to come. And, as Phil Cousineau pointed out in The Art of Pilgrimage, I tend to believe that preparation no more spoils the chance for spontaneity and serendipity then discipline ruins the opportunity for genuine self-expression in sports, acting, or the tea ceremony. For the first-time vagabonder, of course, preparation is a downright necessity. If for no other reason than to familiarize yourself with the fundamental routines of travel, to learn what wonders and challenges await, and to assuage the fears that inevitably accompany any life-changing new pursuit. The key to preparation is to strike a balance between knowing what's out there and being optimistically ignorant. The gift of the information age, after all, is knowing your options, not your destiny. And those who plan their travels with the idea of eliminating all uncertainty and unpredictability are missing out on the whole point of leaving home in the first place. The goal of preparation, then, is not knowing exactly where you'll go, but being confident nonetheless that you'll get there. This means that your attitude will be more important than your itinerary, and that the simple willingness to improvise is more vital in the long run than research. After all, your very first day on the road in making travel immediate and real could very well revolutionize every idea you ever gleaned in the library. As John Steinbeck wrote in Travels with Charlie, once a journey is designed, equipped, and put in process, a new factor enters and takes over. A trip, a safari, an exploration is an entity, and no two are alike. And all plans, safeguards, policing, and coercion are fruitless. We find, after years of struggle, that we do not take a trip. A trip takes us. Regardless of how much time you choose to spend in travel planning, the odds are your true preparations began long ago when you first learned that there was a world out there to explore. Over a lifetime, various sources of inspiration, novels, teachers, hobbies, help to stoke the vagabonding urge. Once you've made the determined decision to hit the road, of course, this preparation process focuses and intensifies. The first place many people turn when planning a trip is traditional and online media, since it represents such a broad variety of resources. 
However, a lot of media information, especially day-to-day -day news, should be approached with a healthy amount of skepticism. This is because so many media outlets, especially television magazines and the Internet, are more in the business of competing for your attention than giving you a balanced picture of the world. Real people and places become objectified, made unreal, as news media dotes on wars, disasters, elections, celebrities, and sporting events. Moreover, what qualifies as travel coverage in the mainstream news revolves primarily around stunts, tie-ins, and commerce. Rich men racing balloons around the world, sci-fi fans driving hundreds of miles to catch the latest movie premiere, industry insiders comparing air travel bargains. Personal, long-term travel rarely gets a mention unless it relates to something moralistic or vaguely alarming, usually in regard to young people. Time magazine in particular has the irksome habit of portraying 20-something backpackers as drug-addled dimwits. A good rule of thumb, then, when watching news coverage of other countries, is to think about how the average Hollywood movie exports visions of America to other countries. Just as day-to-day -day American life is not characterized by car chases, gun battles, and unusually large-breasted women, life overseas is not populated by sinister or melodramatic stereotypes. Rather, it's full of people with values not that much different than your own. Before I went to the Middle East, for example, I'd assumed from media images that Syria was a rogue state, full of humorless police informants and terrorist training camps. Once I'd drummed up the courage to actually visit Syria, however, this stereotype was shattered by the simple warmth and exuberance of the Arabs, Kurds, and Armenians who lived there. If police informants were indeed trailing my every move in Syria, they witnessed little more than a charming succession of home-cooked dinners, spontaneous neighborhood tours, and tea shop backgammon games. Thus, to gain an accurate perspective and inspiration for your travels, you need to duck the frenzy of day-to-day -day news and dig for more relevant sources of information. Fortunately, there are plenty of options. Literary travel narratives, specialty magazines covering all manner of travel, English-language foreign newspapers and journals, novels set in distant lands, academic and historical studies of other cultures, foreign-language dictionaries and phrasebooks, maps and atlases, scientific and cultural videos and TV programs, almanacs, encyclopedias, and travel reference books, travelogues and guidebooks. I've listed starting points for various such resources at vagabonding.net slash resources, but I'll elaborate a bit here on travel guidebooks, since they're particularly important. Guidebooks should never be your only source of travel information, of course, but they deserve a special mention because they're likely the only resource you'll bring with you on the road. They also contain the kind of pertinent, specialized information that can help even the most timid homebody gain knowledge and courage about the practical possibilities of vagabonding. Nevertheless, you should carefully consider a guidebook's advantages and limitations before you use it to dictate your travels. Too often, travelers adhere far too religiously to the advice and information that guidebooks dispense. And while some critics blame this trend on the current popularity of independent travel guidebooks, this certainly isn't a recent phenomenon. When visiting the Holy Land in the 19th century, Mark Twain expressed frequent exasperation at the guidebook fundamentalists in his travel party. I can almost tell in set phrase what they will say when they see Tabor, Nazareth, Jericho, and Jerusalem, Twain wrote in The Innocents Abroad, because I have the books they will smooch their ideas from. These authors write pictures and frame rhapsodies, and lesser men follow and see with the author's eyes instead of their own, and speak with his tongue. The pilgrims will tell of Palestine when they get home, not as it appeared to them, but as it appeared in the guidebooks, with the tents varied to suit each pilgrim's creed. Because a guidebook can thus jade your impressions, it's important to use it as a handy reference during your adventures, not as an all-encompassing holy book.
Even professional guidebook writers recommend that you maintain a healthy independence from their advice. There's no need to treat a lonely planet book like a Bible, travel publisher Tony Wheeler once told me in an interview. Just because we don't list certain restaurants and hotels doesn't mean they aren't any good. Sometimes people even write to say they use our books only to see where not to go. They don't want to stay with everybody else, so they go to the hotels that aren't listed in the Lonely Planet. I think that's great because we encourage travelers to be different. As a general rule, good guidebooks contain useful condensed travel information relating to a specific region, historical and cultural background, pointers regarding local languages and customs, data on the climate and environment, advice on getting visas and changing money, tips for staying healthy and out of harm's way, instructions for using local transportation, and recommendations for lodging, food, and entertainment. Since owners change and prices are in constant flux, hotel and restaurant recommendations will be the least dependable information in any guidebook you buy. In Vietnam, for example, I found that the hotels and restaurants recommended in the Lonely Planet and the rough guidebooks invariably had the worst customer service since guidebook notoriety guaranteed them a steady flow of Western travelers. Fortunately, sniffing out comfortable beds and tasty dishes on my own in Vietnam proved to be an easy and enjoyable process once I got a little experience and learned what to look for. In choosing a guide for your particular destination, it's useful to do a bit of comparison shopping to find the best book for your needs, since guidebook quality tends to vary from country to country. For instance, an experienced vagabonder who uses a moon guidebook for Honduras might very well prefer a brat guide in Ethiopia, a lonely planet guide in Thailand, and a footprint handbook on the South America circuit. It's good to inquire online about the best guides for your region of choice, but it's important to sample a wide range of opinions since the guidebook issue occasionally attracts skewed prejudices from travelers. Since both new and used guidebooks are readily available along most overseas travel circuits, I'd recommend traveling with just one guidebook at a time, regardless of how many regions you plan to visit. It's easy to sell, swap, and buy books as you go, and the weight you save by keeping your books to a minimum will be well worth it. A great alternative to using a guidebook, especially once you've gotten the hang of vagabonding, is to rely instead on an accurate regional map and a language phrasebook. You might miss out on a little contextual information this way, but the quirky destinations and human-centered adventures you'll find in the process will more than make up for it. Q&A, travel preparation. As you prepare for your travels, you'll find yourself pondering the kinds of practical issues all vagabonders have to face before they hit the road. Health needs and immunization requirements, safety issues and travel advisories, passport and visa details, insurance and emergency communication needs, and concerns about food, lodging, and transportation in faraway destinations. Fortunately, a good guidebook will cover most of these issues for your specific destination. Though it's always good to double-check timely matters, including visa requirements and travel advisories, on the Internet. Several trip preparation resources can be found at vagabonding.net slash resources. If in doubt about how exactly you will deal with the unexpected over the long haul, remember that simple awareness and adaptation will count for more than detailed troubleshooting. It's hard to predict when or if crime will occur, for instance, but it's easy to maintain habits such as keeping your cash in a money belt or always locking up your bag, that will lessen your chances of becoming a victim. In the end, the worst-case scenarios you dream up in the planning stage rarely come true. And in the event that some debacle should overtake you during your travels, awareness and adaptation are still your best resources. In addition to these sundry travel preparation matters, most people ponder a few big, basic concerns in anticipation of vagabonding. These concerns include 1. The world is a big place. Where should I go? 
This could be the hardest question of them all, not because some destinations are necessarily better than others, but because all destinations are potentially wonderful in their own way. In essence, choosing one region to explore means forsaking, for the time being at least, dozens of other fantastic parts of the world. Looking for a conclusive reason to pick one place over another can be maddening. Fortunately, you don't ever need a really good reason to go anywhere. Rather, just go to a place for whatever happens when you get there. And as cheeky as that may sound, it's the way vagabonding usually works. You might start a Middle East loop in Egypt because of the pyramids, for example, and end up staying there three extra months for completely unrelated reasons. Arabic poetry, belly dancing lessons, or a desert love affair with a Hungarian archaeologist. For Americans, the European circuit is an instinctive vagabonding destination, but nearly any part of the world can be travel-friendly. Should you want to get the most out of your travel dollar, Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East, Central America, and South America are all home to cheap, safe, time-honored vagabonding circuits. Africa and Oceania, including Australia, are slightly more spendy, but still no more expensive than your average week at home. Even North America, where I did my first vagabonding stint, can make for a fantastic and affordable long-term travel experience, given the right amount of initiative and thrift. Of course, the traditional circuits of the budget travel world need only be a mental reference point in planning your travels. Your actual vagabonding strategy can and should be as conventional or esoteric as you want it to be. Thus, feel free to draw any inspiration, no matter how stolid or silly, when considering where to go. The fanciful idea of learning to tango, for instance, might make you consider visiting Argentina. A childhood fascination with Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom might inspire you to seek out the beasts of Botswana. Perhaps reading Kerouac's On the Road will make you want to strike out and see America. An interest in table tennis might take you to China. A rugby addiction might send you to New Zealand or Fiji. The legend of Prester John might lure you to Ethiopia. A passion for butterflies might send you to Costa Rica. A surfing yen might land you in Australia. A curiosity about your ancestry might call you back to Scotland, the Philippines, or Cuba. Maybe your mother's European hitchhiking trip in the late 70s will inspire you to follow in her footsteps. Maybe you'll head to Singapore just to see how it measures up to the Tom Waits song of the same name. Maybe you'll hit Djibouti simply because the mention of this country made you giggle in junior high geography class. There's even an outside chance that that Taj Mahal snow globe you've cherished since childhood will prompt you to visit India. Whatever the original motivation for going someplace, remember that you'll rarely get what you expect when you go there, and this is almost always a good thing. While vagabonding through Eastern Europe, for instance, I went to Latvia simply because it sounded like a nice, dull place to get some reading and writing done. As it turned out, the parks, cinemas, and kitschy heavy metal nightclubs of Riga, as well as the friendliness of Latvians in general, kept me there for three lively weeks. Once you've chosen a vagabonding region, don't get too ambitious just yet about what you want to do there. For all you've studied and anticipated about a place, you'll find 20 times more after a few days of experiencing it. Thus, go ahead and research a general itinerary, but only so you can estimate your budget and learn what's out there. Don't plan to do Asia in six months. Instead, aim to see a part of it, like the Northeast, the Southeast, or India. Similarly, don't plan to do Central America in six weeks. You'll have a much more vivid experience if you limit yourself to a country or two. And, even if you have two years to play with, trying to cram five continents into a single vagabonding stint is a sure path to jadedness and exhaustion. Vagabonding is not like bulk shopping. The value of your travels does not hinge on how many stamps you have in your passport when you get home, and the slow, nuanced experience of a single country is always better than the hurried, superficial experience of 40 countries. Moreover, resist the temptation to purchase your specifics in advance. 
As wonderful as that Ugandan safari looks in the promotional literature of a Dallas-based travel company, shopping for the same experience when you arrive in Africa will be infinitely less expensive, and you'll have saved yourself the trouble of adhering to a fixed date. The same goes for air travel. Despite how tempting a discounted around-the-world flight ticket might seem, it's generally better to buy a one-way ticket to your first destination and plan your ongoing transportation as you go. Not only is it cheaper this way, thanks to frumpy local airlines such as Biman Bangladesh, Aero Caribbean, and Malav Air, but it also allows you a more organic experience, since you'll have a much better feel for your travels en route than you will before they begin. Accordingly, there's no need to prearrange all of your national entry visas before you leave, since these are easy to require en route, and thus less likely to expire or become useless when your plans change. This in mind, pack a dozen or so extra visa-sized photos of yourself just to avoid the hassles of getting mug shots overseas. Check the visa requirements of your initial destination before you leave, of course, since many popular countries, such as China and India, still don't issue visas on arrival. As a general rule, remember that pre-packaged adventures and specific arrangements, even those touted under the guise of budget travel, are for people who can only spare a couple of weeks away from home. Vagabonding is about setting your own pace and finding your own way, and you can rest assured that everything you see in a glossy brochure in Milwaukee will be just as available and 10 times cheaper when you arrive independently at your destination. 2. Should I plan to travel alone or with a companion? There's no universal answer to this question, since it's ultimately a matter of personal preference. I've traveled both ways and found both enjoyable. For my first vagabonding trip, eight months around North America, Traveling with friends allowed me to share the challenges and triumphs of travel and, by splitting cost, helped me save money. The team dynamic also made it easier to overcome my anxieties and hit the road in the first place. All of my ensuing vagabonding journeys, however, have been solo, which I've found is a great way to immerse myself in my surroundings. Without a partner, I have complete independence, which inspires me to meet people and find experiences I normally wouldn't have sought. Plus, going solo is never a strict modus operandi for me. Whenever I tire of solitude, it's always easy to hook up with other travelers for a few days or weeks as I go. If you prefer to travel with a partner from the outset, be sure to choose your company wisely. Make certain that you share similar goals and ideas about how you want to travel. If your idea of a constructive afternoon in Cambodia is, say, identifying flora on the jungle floor, you probably shouldn't pick a partner who'd prefer a seedy bar and a half a dozen hookers. If possible, go on short road trips with your potential partner before you go vagabonding together. It's amazing what you can learn about your compatibility in just a couple days. Avoid compulsive whiners, chronic pessimists, mindless bleeding hearts, and self-conscious hipsters, since these kinds of people, who are surprisingly common in the travel trail, have a way of turning travel into a tiresome farce. Instead, find a partner who exudes an attitude of realism and open-mindedness, since these are the virtues you yourself will want to cultivate. More on that in Chapter 8. Regardless of how compatible you are with your companion, even if your companion is a lover, sibling, or spouse, have no illusions about spending every moment together. Perfect harmony on the road is a pipe dream, so always allow your partnership room to breathe, even if this means amicably splitting up for a few weeks at a time. Thus, in your mental as well as your practical preparations, you should always be ready to go it alone, even if you don't think you'll have to. 3. What should I plan to bring on my travels? As little as possible, period. I can't emphasize enough how important it is to travel light. Dragging an enormous pack full of junk from place to place is the surest way to hamstring your flexibility and turn your travels into a ridiculous, grunting charade. 
Unfortunately, life at home can't prepare you for how little you need on the road. Even people who think they're adhering to basic survival necessities when packing at home generally end up dumping three quarters of their junk within two weeks on the road. Thus, the biggest favor you can do yourself when trying to decide what to bring is to buy, and this is no joke, a very small travel bag. This small pack, of course, will allow you only the minimum. A guidebook, a pair of sandals, standard hygiene items, a few relevant medicines, including sunscreen, disposable earplugs for those inevitable noisy environments, and some small gift items for your future hosts and friends. Add a few changes of simple, functional clothes and one somewhat nice outfit for customs checks and social occasions. Toss in a small flashlight, a decent pair of sunglasses, a day pack for carrying smaller items when you leave your hotel or guest house, and an inexpensive camera. And then, looking down to make sure you have a sturdy pair of boots or walking shoes on your feet, close the bag and affix a small, strong padlock. This might seem like a shockingly scant amount of travel gear, but not if you consider that you will be traveling into a world full of people who have pretty much the same day-to-day -day needs as you do. Indeed, wherever you go in the world, you will find plenty of toiletries, extra clothes, pens, notebooks, tissues, towels, bottled water, and snacks, even if the brand names don't seem all that familiar. Any place that is rainy will have plenty of cheap umbrellas for sale. Mosquito nets will be easily found in areas with lots of insects. Warm clothes, some of them charmingly ethnic, are sure to be sold in any place where the weather gets cold. And shopping for such supplies as you need them can be an adventure in themselves. As for relevant books and maps, they're often easier to find, even in their English edition, at your destination than at home. Camping equipment is something you should bring only if you're certain you'll use it on a frequent basis. Unless you have specifically planned a large portion of your trip in the backcountry, or if, in some North American and Western European areas, camping is the only affordable way to experience your destination, don't bring a tent, a sleeping bag, or cooking gear while vagabonding. Should you feel the urge to sleep rough from time to time, locally purchased hammocks or inexpensive blankets can do wonders. Even in rugged places like the Andes or the Himalayas, it's generally easier to rent quality equipment and guides than to haul in your own trekking gear. All expensive items, such as jewelry and electronics, should be left at home. This includes laptop computers and high-performance digital cameras, since these items tend to get stolen or broken, and, unless you're a professional class writer or photographer, Ballpoint pens, internet cafes, and point-and-shoot cameras can meet your needs just as well. 4. How do I deal with money issues on the road? A few years ago, a travel friend confidently predicted that every country with paved runways at its major airports would soon have automated teller machines in their major urban centers. I don't know if this has happened everywhere in the world, but there's no doubt that the increasing availability of ATMs worldwide is making cash management much easier for travelers. Not only do ATMs give a competitive rate of exchange overseas, they also save you the hassle of preparing and carrying all of your travel money at once. ATMs are less common outside of industrialized countries, but they are numerous enough that you can find and use them in bigger cities along your route, thus allowing you to periodically stock up on local currency and save your cash for more far-flung locations. Before you leave, of course, check with your bank about the overseas compatibility of your ATM card. As for predicting your vagabonding expenses, don't get too hung up on the minute details of budgeting since you'll have a better feel for things once you are actually traveling. To be safe, keep your cost projections on the conservative side, and don't forget to estimate for visa fees, airport taxes, souvenirs, and occasional luxury indulgences like nice hotels, fancy dinners, scuba diving lessons, and the like. If you think you have just enough money to travel for six months, for example, plan on traveling for four months. 
If you have money remaining after those four months, consider the two or possibly more extra months as a bonus. As a rule, it's best not to travel your way down to your last dime, even if you plan on getting road jobs from time to time. Set aside a few hundred dollars as an emergency fund and resist the urge to find emergencies at carpet bazaars and full moon parties. Before you leave on your trip, pay all your bills in advance and settle all your debts so you don't have to worry about these things on the road. Entrust your mail and home financial dealings to a trusted friend or family member, and be sure to give them backup copies of your passport information. Don't make things too complicated for this person. They're doing you a big favor, after all. And be sure to leave clear instructions about what to do in possible emergency scenarios. Of course, you should handsomely reward this person with exotic gifts once you've returned from your travels. 5. The transition from home life to vagabonding seems like such a big step. How do I deal with it? Never underestimate your ability to learn and adapt quickly, and don't waste your time fretting about every possibility that might come your way on the road. Again, simple courage is worth far more than detailed logistics, and a confident, positive, ready-to-learn attitude will make up for any travel savvy you lack at the outset. With such an attitude, most people find themselves brimming with confidence after their first few days of vagabonding and kicking themselves for not having mustered the courage to do it years ago. Vagabonding Profile, Baird Taylor Baird Taylor's lifelong ambition was to capture the American imagination with his poems, but this never quite happened. Instead, Taylor got his notoriety in introducing Americans to the notion that you don't have to be rich to travel overseas. Born in Pennsylvania in 1825, Taylor resolved at age 19 to travel across Europe. To save money in procuring his passport, he walked from Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C., departing for Europe with just $140 in his pocket. Through thrift and occasional work on the road, Taylor managed to stretch this sum into two years of travel by avoiding commercial inns, eating at farmer's markets instead of restaurants, and walking everywhere. While studying German in Frankfurt, he lived on just 33 cents a day. In Views Afoot, published upon his return, he expressed befuddlement at many of his overprepared fellow travelers, who had little interest in anything save simple comforts and canned guidebook wisdom, scarcely lifting their eyes to see the real scenes. Interestingly, Views Afoot turned into kind of a guidebook itself, fueling a budget travel tradition that has made vagabonding possible for many generations of American travelers. Taylor never lost his ambition to write poetry, but the success of Views Afoot led him to other wanderings in Africa, India, Japan, the Holy Land, and the Arctic Circle. Finally, in 1874, his publishers honored his literary efforts with a special household edition in the tradition of the great poets. The name of this 11-volume work? Baird Taylor's Travels. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 4 this is Powell Berger, a 50-year-old entrepreneur and mom from Kailua, Hawaii. When we first started traveling, I planned everything, every flight, every train, every lodging option, even many must-see-eat experience spots along the way. Now I just plan the bones, the long leg flights and hard-to-get lodging. Then I let the rest develop organically as we go along. Cheap flights, cheap trains, cheap buses are easy to find. Incredible moments happened upon because you aren't tied to an itinerary, though. Those are the reasons you travel. This is Alex Vanlone, a 13-year-old student from Seattle, Washington. We planned for over two years for our trip. That is not to say that we put in place every detail, but that we focused on ways to make the most of our journey. Decisions were made in the context of the trip. 
Our dining room walls were covered with maps, which helped us plot our itinerary and visualize where we were going. This is Lavinia Spaulding, a 43-year-old writer, editor, and teacher from San Francisco. Don't think about it too much. Don't make pro and con lists. Pro and con lists are nothing but trouble. If you think about it too much, you'll just end up staying home. And then someday you'll be telling your grandchildren, I always wanted to do that, instead of showing them photos of the trips you took and giving them advice on where to go. Over the years, family and friends have said to me, I'm living vicariously through you. Don't ever live vicariously. This is your life. Live. Quotes, Chapter 4. Phil Cousineau, The Art of Pilgrimage. Reading old travel books or novels set in faraway places, spinning globes, unfolding maps, playing world music, eating in ethnic restaurants, meeting friends in cafes, all these things are part of a never-ending travel practice, not unlike doing scales on a piano, shooting free throws, or meditating. Paul Theroux from Fresh Air Fiend Traveling hopefully into the unknown with a little information, dead reckoning is the way most people live their lives, and the phrase itself seems to sum up human existence. Also from Paul Theroux from To the Ends of the Earth, It is fatal to know too much at the outset. Boredom comes as quickly to the traveler who knows his route as to the novelist who is over-certain of his plot. Rosita Forbes from Red Sea to Blue Nile That is the charm of a map. It represents the other side of the horizon where everything is possible. Lao Tzu from The Way of Life A good traveler has no fixed plan and is not intent on arriving. John Steinbeck from Travels with Charlie When the virus of restlessness begins to take possession of a wayward man and the road away from here seems broad and straight and sweet, the victim must first find in himself a good and sufficient reason for going. This, to the practical bum, is not difficult. He has a built-in garden of reasons to choose from. Next, he must plan his trip in time and space, choose a direction and a destination. Paul Fussell from Abroad Before the development of tourism, travel was conceived to be like study, and its fruits were considered to be the adornment of the mind and the formation of the judgment. The traveler was a student of what he sought. Tip Sheet, Chapter 4 Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for the most current resources on topics like online travel research portals, General Travel Planning Guides Online, Online Government Travel Resources, Guidebook Publishers, Travel Idea Books, International Information and News, Independent Travel Magazines, General Travel Magazines, Student Travel Resources, Bargain Air Travel Information, Online Air Ticketing Services, and Travel Insurers. Part 3. On the Road Chapter 5. Don't Set Limits Buddhists believe that we live our everyday lives as if inside an eggshell. Just as an unhatched chicken has few clues about what life is really like, most of us are only vaguely aware of the greater world that surrounds us. 
Excitement and depression, fortune and misfortune, pleasure and pain are storms in a tiny, private, shell-bound realm, which we take to be the whole of existence. Yet we can break out of this shell and enter a new world. Vagabonding is not nirvana, of course, but the egg analogy can still apply. In leaving behind the routines and assumptions of home, in taking that resolute first step into the world, you'll find yourself entering a much larger and less constrictive paradigm. In the planning stages of your travels, this notion might seem daunting. But once you take the plunge and get out on the road, you'll quickly find yourself giddy at how easy and thrilling it all is. Normal experiences, such as ordering food or taking a bus, will suddenly seem extraordinary and full of possibility. All the details of daily life that you ignored back home, the taste of a soft drink, the sound of a radio, the smell of the air, will suddenly seem rich and exotic. Food, fashions, and entertainment will prove delightfully quirky and shockingly cheap. In spite of all your preparation, you will invariably find yourself wanting to know more about the histories and cultures that envelop you. The subtle buzz of the unknown, initially a bit of a fright, will soon prove addictive. Simple trips to the market or the toilet can turn into adventures. Simple conversations can lead to charming friendships. Life on the road, you'll soon discover, is far less complicated than what you knew back home, yet intriguingly more complex. Travel in general and vagabonding in particular produces an awesome density of experience, wrote Ed Byrne. A cramming together of incidents, impressions, and life detail that is both stimulating and exhausting. So much new and different happens to you so frequently just when you're most sensitive to it. You may be excited, bored, confused, desperate, and amazed all in the same happy day. If there's one key concept to remember amid the excitement of your first days on the road, it's this. Slow down. Just to underscore the importance of this concept, I'll say it again. Slow down. For first-time vagabonders, this can be one of the hardest travel lessons to grasp, since it will seem that there are so many amazing sights and experiences to squeeze in. You must keep in mind, however, that the whole point of long-term travel is having the time to move deliberately through the world. Vagabonding is not merely about reallotting a portion of your life for travel, but rediscovering the entire concept of time. At home, you're conditioned to get to the point and get things done, to favor goals and efficiency over moment-by-moment -moment distinction. On the road, you learn to improvise your days, take a second look at everything you see, and not obsess over your schedule. Make a point, then, of easing your way into your travels. Shortly after arriving at your initial destination, find a beachhead, be it an actual beach, an urban traveler's ghetto, or an out-of-the-way town, and spend a few days relaxing and acclimating yourself. Don't strike out to hit all the sights or actualize all your travel fantasies from the get-go. Stay organized and interested, but don't keep a things-to-do list. Watch and listen to your environment. Take pleasure in the small details and differences. Look more and analyze less. Take things as they come. Practice your flexibility and patience, and don't decide in advance how long you'll stay in one place or another. In many ways, this transition into travel can be compared to childhood. Everything you see is new and emotionally affecting. Basic tasks like eating and sleeping take on a heightened significance, and entertainment can be found in the simplest curiosities and novelties. Suddenly you're five years old again, Bill Bryson observed in Neither Here Nor There. You can't read anything, you only have the most rudimentary sense of how things work, and you can't even reliably cross the street without endangering your life. Your whole existence becomes a series of interesting guesses. In a certain sense, walking through new places with the instincts of a five-year-old is liberating. No longer are you bound to your past. 
In living so far away from your home, you'll suddenly find yourself holding a clean slate. There's no better opportunity to break old habits, face latent fears, and test out repressed facets of your personality. Socially, you'll find it easier to be gregarious and open-minded. Mentally, you'll feel engaged and optimistic, newly ready to listen and learn. And as much as anything, you'll find yourself abuzz with a peculiar feeling that you can choose to go in any direction, literally and figuratively, at any given moment. Early on, of course, you're bound to make travel mistakes. Dubious merchants may swindle you, unfamiliarity with cultural customs may cause you to offend people, and you'll often find yourself wandering lost through strange surroundings. Some travelers go to great pains to avoid these neophyte blunders, but they're actually an important part of the learning experience. As the Quran says, Did you think you should enter the garden of bliss without such trials as came to those who passed before you? Indeed, everyone starts out as a vagabonding greenhorn, and there's no reason to presume you'll be any different. One of my early gaffes as a vagabonder happened in Chinese Macau, where I found a small slope of green grass while hiking below the walls of a local Portuguese fortress. Since I'd spent most of that week in the concrete confines of Hong Kong, this park-like swath of grass was too tempting to pass up. Flinging aside my day pack, I sprawled out on the turf to soak in a bit of afternoon sun. Eventually, I noticed that a crowd of locals was staring at me. I waved to them, and they giggled. At first, I figured they were just charmed by my happy-go-lucky informality until an English-speaking student courteously approached me. I'm sorry, he said, but it's not healthy to sit on this grass. Oh, that's okay, I told him. Where I come from, we do this all the time. It's what parks are made for. A few bugs and some pollen never hurt anyone. Yes, said the young man, blushing at my stupidity. But where I come from, the grass is for dogs to use as a toilet. I forget my exact response to this startling revelation, but my point is that every vagabonder ends up looking like a tourist dork from time to time. One of the essential skills for the traveler, noted journalist John Flynn, is the ability to make a rather extravagant fool of oneself. Thus, allow yourself to laugh and grow through your mishaps. Not only will you learn new things about yourself and your surroundings in the process, but you'll also get a crash course in the traveler's life, which includes such mundane rituals as bargaining for vegetables, navigating unfamiliar surroundings with a guidebook map, and washing your clothes in the hotel room sink. Given the proper attitude, you'll find yourself attuned to the new rhythms of the vagabonding life within just a few days. On the road, one of the first questions to haunt beginning travelers is a deceptively simple one. What are you supposed to do from day to day? At first blush, this question is rather easy to answer. Statistically speaking, people visiting new places tend to seek out local monuments, museums, ruins, natural wonders, cultural highlights, ethnic villages, markets, restaurants, arts performances, recreation activities, hangouts, and nightlife. Or, in more vivid terms, you'll start your travels by doing the things that you dreamed about when you were still planning your travels. You'll stand in awe of the ancients at places like Stonehenge, Angkor Wat, and Machu Picchu. You'll wander amazed through the exhibits of the Smithsonian, the Louvre, or the Hermitage. You'll stare in reverence at the sunrise over the African Serengeti, sunset over the Australian outback, or high noon in the steamy jungles of Borneo. You'll listen, rapt, to the otherworldly whistle of Mongolian throat singers, stare in amazement at the swirl of Turkish Sufis, or stomp along madly to Irish drinking songs. You'll shop for Mayan weavings in the markets of Chichi Castanango, haggle for Damascus in the souks of Damascus, or bargain for brocade in the merchant alleyways of Varanasi. You will bungee jump into the canyons of New Zealand, 
climb the slopes of Kilimanjaro, or windsurf the Sea of Galilee. You will have impassioned one-week love affairs with natives and fellow travelers alike, along the Adriatic coast of Croatia, the cobbled streets of Havana, or the neon avenues of Tokyo. You will sip cappuccino in the cafes of the Italian Riviera, eat fresh fruit in the Sri Lankan highlands, or stare blissfully into space along the clean blue waters of the Costa Rican coast. You will quaff ouzo all day in the islands of Greece, dance to techno all night on the shores of Goa, or lose a week's sleep in the carnival madness of Rio de Janeiro. Collectively, these are the sorts of highlights that link together the various tourist trails and traveler circuits that crisscross the planet. Unfortunately, life on the traveler circuit is not an unbroken succession of magical moments and mountaintop experiences, and some sites and activities can get redundant after a while. Moreover, the standard attractions of travel, from the temples of Luxor to the party beaches of the Caribbean, can become so crowded and jaded by their own popularity that it's difficult to truly experience them. Indeed, one of the big cliches of modern travel is the fear of letdown at a place you've always dreamed of visiting. I recall a New Yorker cartoon that featured a man looking at pictures of world-famous destinations in a tourist office. It all looks so great, he says. I can't wait to be disappointed. In his book, The Tourist, Dean McCannell lays out the problem in dry academic terms. The individual act of sightseeing, he writes, is probably less important than the ceremonial ratification of authentic attractions and objects of ultimate value. The actual act of communion between the tourist and attraction is less important than the image or idea of society that the collective act generates. In other words, tourist attractions are defined by their collective popularity, and that very popularity tends to devalue the individual experience of such attractions. The current trend of globalization only intensifies this feeling, and this has inspired cultural critics the world over to bemoan how tainted the world's tourist draws have become. The mauling over of the Champs-Élysées, the fast-food restaurants that sit within view of the Sphinx at Giza, and the ready availability of granola in the backpacker haunts of Yunnan have all been used as examples of how tourism is subsuming cultures. Fortunately, such fears say more about the travel habits of cultural critics than the actual reality of the road. Indeed, you need only wander a few minutes from the Champs-Élysées, the Sphinx, or the backpacker dives of Dali if you want to see untainted glimpses of Paris, Egypt, or China. Strangely, however, few people, even lonely planet-clutching independent travelers, think to stray from the accepted tourist routes. It's almost as if the tourist trail has become some kind of science fiction force field, a web of attractions, amenities, and infrastructure from which only intrepid heroes can escape. Fortunately, finding a singular travel experience doesn't require heroism so much as a simple change of mindset. The reason so many travelers become frustrated while visiting world-famous destinations is that they are still playing by the rules of home, which reward you for following set routines and protocols. Thus, on the road, you should never forget that you are uniquely in control of your own agenda. If the line for Lenin's tomb outside the Kremlin is too long, you have the right to buy a couple bottles of beer, plant yourself at the edge of Red Square, and happily watch the rest of Moscow swirl around you. If Indonesia's Kuta Beach feels too much like a strip mall, you have the right to toss your guidebook aside, take a bus inland, and get lost in the sleepy mountain villages of Bali. If the sight of a McDonald's franchise at the edge of Tiananmen Square bugs you, you have the right to jump on a city bus, get off at random, and wander out to observe everyday life in the ancient hutongs of Beijing. Of course, habitual avoidance of the sights can be a cliché in itself, 
especially within the pseudo-counterculture crowd that Paul Fussell called anti-tourists. The anti-tourist is not to be confused with the traveler, wrote Fussell in Abroad. His motive is not inquiry, but self-protection and vanity. Ostentatiously dressing in local fashions, deliberately not carrying a camera, and sedulously avoiding the standard sights, the anti-tourist doesn't have much integrity or agenda beyond his self-conscious decision to stand apart from other tourists. So endemic is this mentality that many beginning wanderers are looped into the anti-tourist mindset from their first day on the road. In the backpacker satire, Are You Experienced?, pop novelist William Sutcliffe comically portrays a group of travelers who can't figure out what to do while avoiding the tourist mainstream in India. The most eloquent defense of travel, observes the main character, was from Paul, who said, Dunno. Guess there must be something to do. Apparently the dope's really cheap. Indeed, the dope is cheap in many parts of the world, so long as you aren't caught with it. But this is hardly the secret to keeping yourself interested and impassioned in foreign lands. Rather, the secret to staying intrigued on the road, the secret to truly becoming different from the frustrated masses, is this. Don't set limits. Don't set limits on what you can or can't do. Don't set limits on what is or isn't worthy of your time. Dare yourself to play games with your day. Watch, wait, listen. Allow things to happen. Wherever you are, be it the Vatican gift shop, a jungle village in Panama, or downtown Ouagadougou, keep aware of the tiniest ticks and details that surround you. As Dean McCannell pointed out, Anything that is remarked, even little flowers or leaves picked up off the ground and shown to a child, even a shoe shine or a gravel pit, anything is potentially an attraction. Sometimes we have official guides and travel logs to assist us in this point. Usually we are on our own. How else do we know another person except as an ensemble of suggestions hollowed out from the universe of possible suggestions? How else do we begin to know the world? In this way, vagabonding is like a pilgrimage without a specific destination or goal. Not a quest for answers so much as a celebration of the questions, an embrace of the ambiguous, and an openness to anything that comes your way. Indeed, if you set off down the road with specific agendas and goals, you will at best discover the pleasure of actualizing them. But if you wander with open eyes and simple curiosity, you'll discover a much richer pleasure, the simple feeling of possibility that hums from every direction as you move from place to place. Vagabonding Profile, John Muir Widely regarded as America's first true environmentalist, John Muir exemplified how travel is best approached with a vivid and passionate interest in one's surroundings. Born in Scotland in 1838 and raised in Wisconsin, Muir briefly lost his eyesight in a shop accident at age 29. When he regained his vision a month later, he resolved to strike out and see the fabulous sights, forests, mountains, lakes, that he'd nearly been denied. Setting off on foot, he walked 1,000 miles from Indianapolis to the Gulf of Mexico. Eventually, he made his way to California, where he fell in love with Yosemite and the Sierra Nevada. Ultimately, his peripatetic life took him to places as far as Alaska, South America, Australia, Africa, Japan, and China. From the beginning, Muir's travels were fueled by a passion for nature, and he always absorbed himself in studying the flora and geology of the places he visited. He was never in a hurry to reach his destination, and he once told a friend that a delay of 40 years or more didn't bother him as long as he could explore other wildernesses along the way. Muir believed that the worst mistake you could make in life is to consider yourself separate from your destinations, experiences, and surroundings. As soon as we take one thing by itself, he wrote, 
we find it hitched to everything in the universe. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 5 This is Jen Miller, a 39-year-old freelance writer from Canada. It's so easy to set out with a backpack full of enthusiasm and travel hard and fast, like an experienced junkie, getting your next fix from the new, the novel, or the iconic. Most people do. If you keep going long enough, the hard burn wears off, and you begin to slow down, to go your own way. And you realize that the greater value is not in what you've seen and checked off the list, but in what you've learned deeply, the hard way. Have the guts to step off the backpacker highway sooner rather than later. Lay down the guidebook and just open your eyes. This is Johnny Ward, a travel blogger and lifestyle designer from Ireland. The road is nothing but open. If possible, travel cheaply regardless of your budget. Take chicken buses, ride third-class trains, mix with locals, and get lost along the way. This is Andy Haffenbrack, a 26-year-old PhD student from Issaquah, Washington. During my last college summer, Ural Pass in hand, I saw half the countries of Europe for about 36 hours each. With a few exceptions, I didn't catch even passing glimpses of the culture or spirit of those countries. I spent way too much time on trains eating bland packaged food, which no one should do in Italy. At the end, I was exhausted. This summer I spent five weeks in Korea. My girlfriend and I rented an apartment. I went to a language school 20 hours a week and we spent the evenings eating barbecue, relaxing in dry saunas, drinking soju, and singing with new and old friends at Noribans. This trip healed and energized me in ways my fast-paced European trip didn't. This is Tim Ferriss, a 36-year-old author from San Francisco, California. Slow down and remember this as you begin your travels. Being busy can be a form of laziness, lazy thinking, and indiscriminate action. Being selective, in other words, doing less in a smart way, is usually the more productive and fun path. Focus on the quality of your experiences instead of the quantity. So get to know a few places really well and try to avoid, on the other hand, racing around the world in some overambitious itinerary viewing everything through your iPhone. In other words, try to live it and experience it, not just gather stories for later. Quotes, Chapter 5 Antonio Machado, from Cantores Traveler, there is no path. Paths are made by walking. Robert Persig, from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance I don't want to hurry it. That itself is a poisonous 20th century attitude. When you want to hurry something, that means you no longer care about it and want to get on to other things. Paulo Coelho from The Pilgrimage When you travel, you experience in a very practical way the act of rebirth. You confront completely new situations, the day passes more slowly, and on most journeys you don't even understand the language people speak. You begin to be more accessible to others because they may be able to help you in difficult situations. Paul Fussell, Abroad But the traveler's world is not the ordinary one. For travel itself, even the most commonplace, is an implicit quest for anomaly. Phil Cousineau, The Art of Pilgrimage The practice of soulful travel is to discover the overlapping point between history and everyday life, the way to find the essence of every place every day, in the markets, small chapels, out-of-the-way parks, craft shops, 
Curiosity about the extraordinary in the ordinary moves the heart of the traveler intent on seeing behind the veil of tourism. Ed Byrne from Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa. Bear in mind that the special advantage of vagabonding is the experience of not really knowing what happens next, which you can obtain at bargain prices in all cases. The challenges you face offer no alternative but to cope with them, and in doing that, your life is being fully lived. Paul Theroux, quoting Tony the Beachcomber in the Happy Isles of Oceania, What I find is that you can do almost anything, or go almost anywhere, if you're not in a hurry. Tip Sheet, Chapter 5 Here are three tips on getting started. 1. Don't be intimidated by the seemingly intricate details of independent travel. Every major region in the world has independent travel circuits full of normal travelers just like you. Though you'll eventually want to wander off of these circuits, they naturally provide a built-in support group and are a great place to start. 2. If in doubt about what to do in a place, just start walking through your new environment. Walk until your day becomes interesting, even if this means wandering out of town and strolling the countryside. Eventually you'll see a scene or meet a person that makes your walk worthwhile. If you get lost in the process, just take a bus or taxi to a local landmark and find your way back to your hotel from there. 3. Keep a journal from the outset of your travels and discipline yourself to make a new entry every day. Feel free to be as brief or as rambling as you want. Keep track of stories, events, feelings, differences, and impressions. The result will be a remarkable record of your experiences and growth. Here are five tips on day-to-day -day errands. 1. Because vagabonding involves taking your whole life on the road, some of your time each week will be devoted to basic errands, such as buying train tickets, doing laundry, changing money, shopping for toiletries, and sending emails. Allotting a certain amount of time each week to take care of these matters will keep such tasks from continually interrupting your more interesting travel pursuits. 2. When changing currency, always count your money before you leave the bank or exchange counter just in case the teller makes a mistake. In countries where black market exchange rates are preferable, try to make your transaction at a fixed business – hotels and jewelry stores are common for this – instead of a public space. Make sure you agree on a rate. Count the dealer's cash before you hand over yours, and don't accept soiled or torn bills. In countries with weak currency, ask for large denomination bills, as massive piles of small bills are hard to count. If at any point your black marketeer begins to act suspicious, for instance, making unusual requests or acting aggressive, exercise your right to walk away. 3. Avoid the urge to make too many of your on-the-ground transportation arrangements at once, as this will stunt your spontaneity. Even multi-stop discount programs, such as the famous URL train passes, are only a bargain if you're constantly moving from place to place. Advanced reservations are fine, and in the case of trains, often necessary, but only for one trip at a time. 4. Some places, such as India, have cheap and ubiquitous laundry services, but many don't. Fortunately, washing your own clothes is something you can easily do yourself. Bring a universal stopper for your hotel room sink, and use shampoo as a detergent. Bring a small bungee cord to use as a drying line. If your clothes are still a bit damp in the morning, the best solution is to wear them that day, which, while uncomfortable at first, beats having damp clothes inside your pack. 5. Most people in the world don't subsist on supermarket-style canned goods, microwaved meals, and packaged snacks. Brave the open-air food markets and be healthier for the experience.
Here's five steps on accommodations and facilities. One, finding hostels and guest houses as you travel is rarely a problem, so don't bother with reservations. The only exceptions would be, one, when local festivals or tourist high season threaten to make hotel rooms scarce, and two, if your incoming flight arrives late and you want to avoid the hassle of searching out a hotel room in the middle of the night. Two, in most places, cheap hotels and guest houses are locally owned, which means that budget travel is actually the best way to support the local economy. Moreover, locally owned accommodations are usually open to bargaining for room rates, especially during tourist low season. Many places offer a discounted rate for multi-night stays. 3. Never check into a room without asking to see it first. Check to see that the electricity and water work properly and make sure the door locks are functional. Note the location of your room in relation to discos, mosques, factories, major streets, or other surroundings that might prove noisy at certain times of day or night. 4. When you leave your room for a day of adventure, take a hotel business card with you, just in case you get disoriented and forget where you're staying, which, believe it or not, is a surprisingly common travel occurrence. Even if you can't find your way back to the address on the card, a taxi driver can. 5. Hole-in-the-floor squatty-potty toilets are the rule rather than the exception in many parts of the world. If you plan on traveling outside the standard tourist routes, you'd best learn how to use them. Fortunately, squatty potties are very sanitary, though you'll want to pack your own toilet paper if you'd prefer not to wipe with water. Bargaining Outside of the industrial world, fixed prices are often used primarily in restaurants and on buses. Nearly every other product and service on the planet, from hotels to souvenirs to market goods, is open to negotiation, and only a fool would accept an opening price without haggling a little. Below are a few tips for braving the world of non-fixed prices. Here's five tips on souvenirs. 1. Despite the exotic wonders that abound once you arrive overseas, avoid the compulsion to immediately start buying souvenirs. Not only will this save you the trouble of carrying these treasures around with you for the rest of your trip, you'll also have a better feel for how and what to buy after you've traveled around for a while. 2. While bargaining, let the merchant make the first offer, and don't respond by offering half the price and haggling from there. The merchants already expect you to do this, and they adjust their prices accordingly. Instead, see if the merchant will make another, lower offer before you start making bids. As you haggle, remain friendly and assertive, even playful, and try not to be rude or condescending. Conversely, don't let the merchant sway you with emotional pleas and melodramatics. Remember that he or she is much more experienced at this than you, and one of the most successful sales techniques in markets worldwide is to make first-world shoppers feel guilty for not spending more money on something. 3. Rule number one is a conscientious shopper. Never offer a price on an item and then refuse to pay for it. If you're not sure you want something, don't make a bid on it, period. 4. In most tourist areas, souvenir shops sell similar items. Make comparisons before you make your purchase, and don't let merchants convince you that this is somehow impolite. Competition, after all, is how healthy markets thrive. 5. Bargaining can be very difficult during tourist high season when vacationers are happy to pay inflated prices for just about anything. If possible, save your souvenir shopping for low season. The products are the same, but the merchants will more likely be in a position to compromise. Here's six tips regarding taxis and transportation. One, taxi meters can be a confusing issue overseas. Some taxis will have them and others won't. 
some taxi meters will be broken, and others will be outdated. Thus, don't assume all taxis are the same. Make sure that the meter works before you agree to a ride, and make sure the driver turns it on. 2. Taxis without meters are common and legitimate worldwide. Just make sure you agree on a price before you go. Don't get into the taxi until the price is settled, and avoid drivers who try to hurry or bully you into the cab before a price is quoted. 3. Avoid putting your bags into the trunk of a taxi as this is often used as a bargaining chip by dodgy taxi drivers. If you have no choice but to use the trunk, make sure to remove all your baggage from the trunk before you pay your driver. 4. In some places, such as China, taxi and bus drivers will quote you a certain fare in advance, then try to charge you double by claiming your baggage counts as one passenger. Unless your bag is obviously occupying its own bus seat, this is not a legitimate demand. Thus, clarify in advance that the price you're paying is for yourself as well as your luggage. 5. Similarly, some taxi drivers will quote a price for your group and then claim it was a per-person price when it comes time to pay up. This is obviously a scam, and the best way to avoid it is to clarify in advance whether the price applies to individuals or the whole group. 6. For the most part, taxi and bus drivers are interesting, friendly people with great stories to tell. Be on your guard for the occasional scammer, but don't be reflexively paranoid or discourteous with your driver. After all, your road safety is in his hands. Chapter 6. Meet Your Neighbors in India, there's an old parable about a wise king who sent two of his court officers away to explore foreign lands. One of them, the king had observed, was arrogant and self-absorbed. The other was generous and open-minded. After many months of travel and exploration, both men returned home to report their findings. When the king questioned the men about the cities they visited, the generous emissary said that he found the people of foreign lands to be hospitable, generally kind-hearted, and not much different from the people one met at home. On hearing this, the arrogant officer scoffed with envy because the cities he'd visited were full of scheming liars, cheats, and wicked barbarians. Listening to these reports, the king laughed to himself, for he had sent both men to the same places. We see as we are, said the Buddha, and rarely is this quite so evident as when we travel. Unlike a simple vacation, where you rarely have time to interact with your environment, Vagabonding revolves around the people you meet on the road, and the attitude you take into these encounters can make or break your entire travel experience. If you view the world as a predominantly hostile place, it will be, wrote Ed Byrne. By this same logic, of course, a positive worldview can lead to inspiring, human-centered road experiences. Some of the people you'll meet while vagabonding will be fellow travelers, many of them hailing from North America, Europe, Australia, or Japan. Because these other travelers naturally share your interests, values, and freedom, they are some of the most engaging and trustworthy people you'll meet on the road. At times, while hiking up some misty mountain with travel pals, or drunkenly philosophizing while waiting for a beachfront sunrise, you'll wonder how you were ever able to be so lucky to meet such cool, laid-back, open-minded people. Many of these fellow vagabonders will become your long-distance friends, and on occasion your long-distance lovers, for months and years to come. Moreover, it's amazing the things you can learn about the home cultures of your various travel buddies. Over the years, I've sung Norwegian drinking songs in Burma, learned the intricacies of Chilean politics in Latvia, and been tutored in the art of Japanese table manners in Jordan. Traveling with Canadians has taught me more about Canada than I ever learned in my various weekend visits to Vancouver, 
and my countless conversations with Brits have led me to realize just how confused two people can become while supposedly speaking the same language. Of course, you should never get too cliquish about hanging out with other travelers. If you only greet your brothers, Jesus taught, what are you doing more than others? Indeed, in leaving home, you'll find that the most intriguing experiences and eye-opening encounters come from people whose lifestyles and backgrounds are completely different from your own. Which encounter, after all, will teach you the most in Punjab? Drinking Kingfisher lager with a friendly agnostic New Zealander? Or sipping tea with friendly Indian Sikhs? Which activity would you enjoy most in Cuba? Scuba diving with a gregarious German college student? Or Roomba dancing with a gregarious Havana grandmother? Which of these experiences would you most likely share with your friends when you get home? Which would you remember best in your old age? Much of what's memorable in meeting people from faraway lands is how these interactions wind up teaching you about your own culture-fed instincts. What is right and wrong in America doesn't always apply in other countries, and if you continually view other people through your own values, you'll lose the opportunity to view the world through their eyes. Americans, for example, value individualism, whereas most Asian cultures see individualism as a selfish betrayal of duty and family. Westerners prefer to be direct and objective in business dealings, whereas many Easterners see this as cold and dehumanized. People in some cultures will judge you on the basis of your religion, or lack thereof. Others will react strangely to your affluence, or lack of it, appearance, or gender. To read about such cultural differences is one thing, but to experience them is quite another. After all, cultural identity is instinctive, not intellectual, and this means that the challenge will come not in how you manage your own manners, but in how you instinctively react to the unfamiliar manners of others. When I was teaching English in Korea, for example, I became frustrated by my students' reaction to my informal teaching style. Thinking that my college-age pupils would be more inspired to practice their English if they regarded me as a friend instead of a teacher, I conducted many of my classes in coffee shops and pubs. My students seemed to enjoy this unusual study environment, but they always clammed up when I referred to them as my friends. We are not your friends, one studious sophomore insisted. We will never be your friends. Her response, which I initially took as hostility towards me as a non-Korean, left me feeling depressed. It wasn't until months later that I finally came to understand how the Korean notion of friendship is vastly different than that of the West. By their Confucian system of manners, friendship is reserved for people of a similar social standing, and to regard a teacher as a friend, rather than a superior, would be a grave insult for both parties. In this way, cultural awareness is often the positive product of rather negative experiences, and no amount of sensitivity training can compare to what you'll learn by accident. After all, the very concept of cultural sensitivity is something we understand through the liberal, democratic, egalitarian taint of our own culture, and those very assumptions might actually be offensive to some ways of thinking. The whole point of travel, then, is not to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of other cultures. After all, you could stay home and do that but to better understand them. Thus, the secret to interacting with people in foreign lands is not to fine-tune your sense of political correctness, which is itself a Western construct, but to fine-tune your sense of humor. Most comedy, after all, is simply a displacement of context. Jack Lemmon dressing up as a woman, Andy Kaufman lip-seeking the Mighty Mouse theme song, Jerry Seinfeld dating a woman whose name he can't remember. And where can you find a more radical context displacement than in traveling to foreign lands? The ability to laugh at yourself and take things in stride can thus be the key to enduring strange new cultural situations. And, while humor might seem a fairly contemporary way to deal with unfamiliar environments, 
It's actually a time-honored travel strategy. 14th century Moroccan vagabonder Ibn Battuta frequently exercised his self-effacing sense of humor during a 28-year journey through Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. In one instance that reminds me of my own travel experiences, Batuta found himself lost in a Persian city and asked a local dervish if he could speak Arabic. Nam, the dervish replied, using the courteous Arabic word for yes. Encouraged, Batuta then proceeded to ask at great length about the nearest hospice, only to discover that Nam was the only word of Arabic the dervish knew. Similarly, I once spent two hours wandering the Philippine port of Cebu before realizing that yes or no questions would never help me locate an ATM machine. The most vivid bit of cultural displacement from Batuta's travels, however, comes when the Moroccan visits the infidel Sultan of Muljawa in Indonesia. When this Sultan was sitting in audience, I saw a man with a knife in his hand resembling a bookbinder's tool. He put the knife to his own neck and delivered a long speech, which I did not understand, then gripped it with both hands and cut his own throat. So sharp was the knife and so strong his grip that his head fell to the ground. I was amazed at his action. The sultan turned to me and said, Does anyone do this in your country? If Batuta could wing his way through this situation, you should be able to handle the comparatively benign encounters that come your way while vagabonding. On the road, a big prerequisite for keeping your sense of humor is to first cultivate a sense of humility. After all, it can be hard to laugh at yourself if you swagger through the world like you own it. Only a few centuries ago, humility was not even an option for travelers. It was a survival necessity. Medieval explorers groveled in deference to petty regional governors as reflexively as modern travelers apply for visas, and even Marco Polo was forced to do his share of cowering before the great Khan. Indeed, if you think arrogant bureaucrats test your pride and patience at international borders, just keep in mind the visitors to the 16th century East African court of Karanga, who were forced to approach the local monarch by rhythmically clapping their hands as they slithered on their stomachs through fresh cow dung. This in mind, it's amazing the degree of diplomatic immunity that modern travel affords you. Even in isolated areas where the formal laws that guarantee your safety and self-esteem are a mere abstraction, people for the most part treat travelers with warmth and hospitality. Diplomatic immunity notwithstanding, humility is always a useful lifestyle accessory when encountering new cultures. In The Wisdom of the Desert, Thomas Merton recalls the story of a 4th century monk who was ordered by his abbot to give money to whoever insulted him. After faithfully doing this for three years, the monk was then instructed to travel to Athens to further his studies. Merton reports, the disciple was entering Athens when he met a certain man who sat at the gate insulting everyone who came and went. He also insulted the disciple, who immediately burst out laughing. Why do you laugh when I insult you, said the man. Because, said the disciple, for three years I have been paying for this kind of thing, and now you give it to me for nothing. Enter the city, said the man. It's all yours. On the vagabonding road, it's not even likely you'll get insulted that often, but this whimsical analogy still applies. After all, if you can find joy in insults, if you can learn to laugh at what would otherwise have made you angry, then the world is indeed all yours as a cross-cultural traveler. If there's a danger in cultural openness and humility, it's the ease with which you can get carried away with it. Sometimes the simplicity, poverty, and purity of other cultures will seem so intriguing, indeed so close to what you are trying to seek as a vagabonder, that you'll be tempted to completely ditch your own culture in favor of exotic new ideals. Known in the 19th century as Romantic Primitivism, 
This naive compulsion to buy wholesale into the perceived virtues of other cultures climaxed with the celebrated exodus of Western hippies to India in the late 1960s. Two decades later, Indian writer Gita Mehta scathingly suggested that these hippie seekers were little more than confused buffoons who mistook orgies of self-indulgence for revealed mysticism. What an entrance, wrote Mehta in Karmakola. Thousands and thousands of them, clashing cymbals, ringing bells, playing flutes, wearing bright colors and weird clothes, singing, dancing, and speaking in tongues. A caravanserai of libertine celebrants who were wiping away the proprieties of caste, race, and sex by sheer stoned incomprehension. The seduction lay in the chaos. They thought we were simple. We thought they were neon. They thought we were profound. We knew we were provincial. Everyone thought everyone else was ridiculously exotic, and everyone got it wrong. Tourist scholars have attributed such half-baked cultural obsession to the ever-changing and somewhat alienating face of modern society itself. In seeking to become a part of these more traditional cultures, scholars say, modern travelers are trying to validate their sense of authenticity and rediscover their own lost connections to the past. This isn't just a hippie cliché, either. An entire industry of ethno-tourism has now grown up around this sentimental fascination with isolated societies. In the Amazon, guided tourists spend days in the jungle seeking to interact with Stone Age tribes. In Greenland, tour clients pay top dollar to go on traditional Inuit seal hunts. In the South Pacific, nearly forgotten dance traditions have been revived solely to entertain vacationers. This tourist fascination with the exotic has yielded mixed results. As isolated cultures come into closer contact with modern visitors, they naturally become more likely to seek modern conveniences for themselves. The more these ethnic enclaves accumulate radios and motorbikes, of course, the less authentic they seem to appear, and thus they become less appealing to tourists. In places like Bali, ethnic villages have resorted to staged authenticity, hiding televisions and swapping t-shirts for ethnic outfits when tourist buses show up, just to maintain their tourism-dependent economy. Granted, Balinese villagers are just as Balinese when dressed in blue jeans, but that simply doesn't jibe with the fickle market demands of ethno-tourism. Consequently, we end up with these surreal scenarios wherein tourists from Los Angeles will travel to Thailand to see relatively modernized Hmong villagers don ethnic costumes, yet those same tourists would never think to visit a community of similarly modern Hmong Americans in Los Angeles. As historian Dagobert Runes quipped, people travel to faraway places to watch, in fascination, the kind of people they ignore at home. Or, to paraphrase a joke from Seinfeld, many ethno-tourists aren't traveling the world to interact with exotic people, they're traveling the world to interact with exotic clothing. To truly interact with people as you travel, then, you have to learn to see other cultures not as National Geographic snapshots, but as neighbors. And, as with neighbors in your hometown, interaction with people in faraway lands is a two-way street. Indeed, as exotic as the Siberian Chukchi or the Namibian Bushmen seem to you, there's a good chance you will seem exotic to them as well. The simplest fact of our neighbors' lives may read like a fairy tale to us, wrote Pico Iyer in The Global Soul. The forgotten, tonic appendix to this is that our lives, in their tiniest details, may seem marvelous to them, and one virtue of traveling in so strange a place is to be reminded daily of how strange I am to it. This mutual fascination will serve to enrich your encounters on the road, since it allows you to learn as well as teach about your own home as you begin to meet your global neighbors.
Questions and answers for cross-cultural interactions. One, how do I go about meeting locals in my travels? In your day-to-day -day vagabonding experience, meeting locals will rarely prove a problem. From touts at the airport to sheep herders on remote mountains, you will rarely find yourself alone as you travel. It's important to remember, however, that the nature of your relationship to these neighbors will not be the same in every situation. Your gender, for example, will affect how people react to you. Indeed, while most everything I say in this book applies equally to men and women, cross-cultural social interactions are a major exception. This is because women travelers more frequently tend to be the target of curiosity, harassment, and double standards. Simple friendliness and eye contact can be taken the wrong way by men in traditional cultures, and female independence is strangely confused with sexual lasciviousness in many parts of the world. It's not fair, but it's a reality, so female travelers should be on their guard. Most good guidebooks will contain culture-specific advice for female travelers, often pertaining to conservative dress codes. And while it might not be enjoyable to wear a shador in places like Iran, especially when male travelers can wear normal Western clothes, the experience can provide you with unique insights into the lives of women in that part of the world. Moreover, being female often has its social advantages in conservative cultures. I enjoyed my five-month sojourn through the Middle East, for example, but the separation of the sexes within Muslim countries never allowed me to know how Arab women live and think. I found myself in envy of the female travelers who, despite occasional harassment at the hands of local Casanovas, were able to have meaningful encounters with men and women alike. Apart from gender, the nature of your relationship to the locals will also depend on where in the culture you're traveling. At the risk of sounding ridiculously reductive, I'll point out two primary social arenas for travelers in any culture, tourist areas and non-tourist areas. Both provide good opportunities for genuine human interaction, but it's important to be able to distinguish between the two because people tend to view you differently in each. Basic cultural codes of manners, of course, still apply in both areas. And again, any good guidebook will have culture-specific information on local manners, including such simple issues as body language, dress codes, tipping, and table etiquette. Two, what are tourist areas and how do they affect my relationship to the locals? Regardless of whether or not you consider yourself a tourist, as opposed to a traveler, a silly distinction I'll address later, there's no avoiding the fact that you'll spend much of your travel time in tourist areas, which include airports, hotels, bus and train stations, major city centers, historical sites, nature parks, national monuments, and any place travelers congregate in large numbers. In these tourist areas, many locals will use friendship as a front to tout hotels or sell souvenirs. As annoying as this can be, this strategy is not necessarily a calculating capitalistic scam. After all, the formal tourist industry developed out of traditional hospitality, and many locals will take a genuine interest in you even as they try to sell you things. In this way, many of your initial interactions on the road will be with locals who are offering a service, cab drivers, guest house clerks, shopkeepers. Many of these folks will like you mainly for your money, and indeed your money is what feeds their families, but some of them have plenty to offer as genuine friends and cultural hosts. Of all the locals I hung out with in Egypt, my truest Egyptian friend was a hotel clerk who accompanied me to the movies and markets during his time off from work. Of all the people I met in Burma, I learned the most about the local culture from a trishaw driver who, after peddling me around on a paid tour of the Sagang area, took me home to meet his family and insisted I sleep for free at the neighborhood monastery. 
Of course, by virtue of sheer tourist numbers, not every hotel clerk and trishaw driver will be interested in sincere friendship. Tourism can be a bridge to an appreciation of cultural relativity and international understanding, wrote Valene L. Smith in Hosting Guests and Anthropology of Tourism. However, catering to guests is a repetitive, monotonous business, and although questions posed by each visitor may be new to him, hosts can become as bored as if a cassette has been turned on. Beyond this, you can't even assume that interactions are always better than transactions when dealing with people in foreign lands. Surveys in Australia have revealed that Aborigines actually prefer the impersonal dealings of mass tourists to sincere wanderers, since busloads of package tourist guests are more likely to buy souvenirs and less likely to ask a lot of annoying questions. We certainly can appreciate the motives and goodwill of adventuresome tourists who want to become more closely involved with the people they visit, observed tourism scholar Irv Chambers. But it can be disarming to discover that some tourist hosts might be more content to just have the tourist money and be rid of them. Even when your interaction with locals is clearly impersonal and transaction-based, be sure to abide by the simple rules of courtesy. Exercise your smiling muscles, practice your charm, and try to let go of your own cultural assumptions in regard to how people should treat you. Most cultures, after all, aren't familiar with the rigorous American standards of customer service, and few people in the world make a fetish of personal rights quite the way we do in the industrialized West. Put yourself in a local person's shoes before you judge him for his actions, and don't lose your cool over a misunderstood restaurant order or a late bus. Even when dealing with pushy vendors and aggressive touts, a firm, courteous, no thanks, is always better than an angry rebuff. Make an effort to never lose your temper within other cultures, regardless of how tired and frustrated you are, as this will only make your situation worse. Try not to bully or manipulate your way into getting what you want, and of course don't let touts or vendors bully, manipulate, or guilt you into buying something you don't want. If worse comes to worse, simply ignore whoever's bothering you. A lot of the confusion and discord that can arise between travelers and locals revolves around money. Thus, while it's important to practice thrift on the vagabonding road, it's equally important not to be obsessive about your budget. It's one thing to spend money conscientiously, but another to tenaciously scrap for the lowest possible price in countries where the average annual domestic income is smaller than what you'd pay to fly home. Indeed, few things are more ridiculous than the spectacle of a budget traveler losing his temper at a rickshaw driver over 10 cents while negotiating a ride to a bar where he'll blow $10 on beer. Be aware that you occupy an economic dynamic wherever you go, and that there's no particular virtue in compulsively avoiding expenses, especially when many of those expenses are of direct benefit to local families. On one hand, it's good to be aware of the going rate for local products and services, since while the prices may seem cheap compared to home, continually overpaying will only confuse the vendor and jack up the price for other travelers who come along. On the other hand, it's hard to sympathize with a first-world traveler who squeezes another month out of a third-world country by sleeping in the forest and hitching rides. Better to spend that month back home sacking groceries and saving up for a trip that benefits local bus drivers and hotel maids. If there's a rule of thumb for conscientiously spending money on the road, it's to watch what the locals do. Not only will this make you better aware of local prices and procedures, it will give you cultural pointers on everything from haggling for bargains to dealing with beggars. And even if you do occasionally get ripped off as an outsider, remember that even this is part of a time-honored tradition. 
After all, cross-cultural commerce is one of the oldest forms of peaceful exchange on the planet, and getting gouged three extra dollars for that souvenir demon mask, as I once was in Mongolia, is certainly preferable to certain historical alternatives like getting hacked to pieces at the town gate. 3. What about interactions in non-tourist areas? Away from tourist zones, the most awkward aspect of your visiting some places won't be the natives' interest in your money, but their interest in you. In areas that don't see many outsiders, your presence will literally stop activity in the streets. Children will squeal and point. Teens will yell, hello, in ridiculous sing-song voices. Adults will stare and wonder at your foreign skin, hair, height, or clothing. When you stop to rest or eat, crowds will gather to watch your actions in seeming fascination. At times you'll be amazed and exhausted by people's capacity to take intense interest in you for hours on end. Once, while traveling through the northwestern frontier of Cambodia, I enjoyed four days of such celebrity status in a village called Opasat. One elderly villager was so intrigued on meeting me that she yanked off my size 13 sandals and started pulling on my toes. At first I thought this was some sort of massage technique until she reached into my shirt and started tugging at my nipple hair. Of course, not every encounter outside of tourist areas will involve anthropological curiosity at the hands of isolated villagers. Some of the people who take an interest in you will be urban, middle-class locals who are simply curious to hear your views about sports, politics, or pop culture. And while natives who wear American fashions and drop hip-hop slang into their conversations might not live up to your exotic travel fantasies, remember that they, too, are a genuine part of your host culture. Despite globalization-fueled fears, Air Jordans and Internet access have not turned the middle classes of the world into robotic American clones, and your workaday Lima business accountant can give you a glimpse of Peru that is just as authentic as what his potato-farming Andean countrymen can offer. Indeed, some of your most interesting encounters on the road will come from natives who share the same profession as you. Regardless of whether you're a student, a web designer, or a truck driver, it's always fascinating and educational to strike up a friendship with a local who shares your calling. As a former teacher, I found that some of my best road experiences in places like Lebanon, Hungary, and the Philippines came when local educators asked me to participate in their English classes. You'll be amazed by how often you can meet locals merely by strolling around with a smile, but this isn't always a sure method of interacting with people in new environments. At times, locals will be a bit shy or distracted, so it's good to know how to engage them. One simple option is to approach local folks and ask them where you can find a good restaurant. Even if they can't understand you, most people will take an interest and try to help. Or, in many cases, they'll send for the neighborhood's star English speaker, usually a teenage student or a well-traveled elder. Public gathering places, such as cafes, bars, and tea shops, are always good sites to mix and interact with locals, since caffeine and alcohol always inspire people to conversation and extroversion. Sports and music are also great ways to meet people, should you be willing to share your musical or athletic skills, or lack thereof, on street corners and makeshift playing fields. I've lost countless volleyball matches this way in Thailand, but won plenty of friends. Many people use a camera to break the ice in public situations, though you should always ask permission before taking someone's photo, and never renege on a promise to send someone a copy. Conversely, be sure to carry photos of yourself, your hometown, and your family to show people on the road. Not only do such pictures make good conversation pieces or keepsakes, should you have several copies, they can humanize you to people who might otherwise consider you somewhat of a curiosity. Once, while taking a share taxi through Egypt's western desert, I found myself sitting next to a pious Muslim gentleman who proceeded to scold me at length about decadent American values. 
When my verbal defense of American life proved futile, I changed the subject by breaking out photos of my parents, my grandfather, and my nephews. Before long, the man was asking me all kinds of earnest and downright friendly questions about life in the United States. Whereas before I'd been just another sunburned infidel in hiking shorts, my pictures created a common ground by showing how I cared for my family just as he cared for his. One final foolproof method of interacting with people on the road is to play with local children. Unlike adults, kids won't be intimidated by language barriers, and they will be happy to giggle at your silly faces, join you in spontaneous games, and sing along to simple tunes. In dealing with children, however, keep in mind that the best gift you can give them is your time and energy. Some travelers give sweets or pens to kids, thinking perhaps to show goodwill or encourage literacy. But, to the contrary, this usually just encourages kids to beg sweets and pens from the next travelers who come along. 4. How do I bridge the language gap while traveling? One big advantage of 21st century travel is that English has become the lingua franca for much of the world. Even if you don't always find fluent speakers, you can usually find locals, often students, who know a few phrases of English. When speaking English to non-fluent listeners, remember that loudness is not what will make you understood. Rather, you should make an effort to speak slowly, simply, and clearly. And when listening to non-fluent English, be patient and try to figure out mispronounced words from the context of what's being said. Keep in mind that many people know English only from study dictionaries, not spoken and heard conversation, and thus might not know how to sound words correctly. Try to develop an ear for imperfect Tarzan English, and keep in mind that it's probably much clearer than your Tarzan rendering of the local tongue. Compliment anyone brave and helpful enough to try his or her English on you, and try to develop a knack for cross-cultural small talk, which involves simple topics that everyone can relate to, such as family, food, hobbies, and love life or marital status. Pocket language guides can also be good for cross-cultural communication. At times you can have entire, albeit slow, conversations just by flipping through the pages of your phrasebook. And regardless of your adeptness at picking up new languages, it's never too hard to commit a few words and phrases of the local language to memory. Lazy afternoons and long bus rides provide good opportunities to begin your memorization. Useful starting phrases include hello, please and thank you, yes and no, the numbers 1 to 10 plus 100 and 1,000, how much, where is it, and no problem. Additional useful words to learn are those for hotel, bus station, restaurant, toilet, good, bad, and beer. Any local idioms and slang you pick up will delight the locals, so long as you aren't learning something profane or offensive. And, of course, improvised sign language and face-pulling can go a long way toward getting your point across. Regardless of whether you try verbal or visual communication, your efforts will invariably provoke lots of laughter, so be ready to laugh along. 5. How do I respond to offers of hospitality? In a tourist zone, such invitations should make you wary of a scam, or at the very least, a tedious trip to a souvenir shop of your host's uncle. Similarly, females traveling solo in conservative cultures should regard hospitality offers with extreme caution. In most other settings, however, hospitality is a basic form of human-to-human -human communion, and it's always rewarding to share a meal or spend a night with local hosts. Interestingly, I've found that most such invitations come from individuals or families that have a comparatively low standard of living. Since hosting a relatively wealthy guest will be a matter of pride for these folks, don't insult them with an ostentatious, guilt-ridden refusal or a magnanimous offer to foot the bill. Instead, 
Take them up on their offer, but bring along a simple gift, either something from the local market or bottle shop or small souvenirs from home. If you'd like to share your gifts with the children, ask the parents' permission first. Be sensitive and respectful to your hosts and their culture, and don't be averse to taking a polite sip of arak or goat stew, even if you normally consider yourself a teetotaler or a vegetarian. And, of course, don't exploit the institution of hospitality. It can be disheartening to see travelers manipulating local generosity or taking it for granted. As a vagabonder and cultural guest, learn to pay back what you've received by spotting need and practicing generosity elsewhere, even with other travelers as you travel from place to place. The Hungarians who picked me up hitchhiking in Eastern Europe never let me chip in for gas, for instance, but their generosity inspired me to give $20 to a Japanese backpacker who'd lost his money belt in Vienna. Odds are that Japanese traveler was encouraged to pass on the goodwill elsewhere. Thus, even in an indirect way, try to give as much as you take when you travel, even if this means taking an attitude of generosity home with you. 6. What if I get tired of meeting so many people as I travel? If you've had your fill of exotic company, take a break. Hang out with other travelers or bury your nose in a book for a while. Meeting the locals can be rewarding, but that doesn't mean you have to compulsively seek friendships wherever you go. Let things happen. Keep your human interactions on a direct person-to-person -person level and don't acquire these experiences like souvenirs. Even if you find yourself in a positively extraordinary social situation, be it breakfast with Bollywood film stars, lunch with Congolese gorillas, or dinner with Papuan headhunters, try to keep yourself in the moment instead of thinking about what kind of story it will make when you get home. Such awareness will not only make you a better neighbor, but it will ensure that you'll never get homesick as you explore other places. Vagabonding Profile, John Ledyard Shortly before Lewis and Clark famously explored the American West, an equally intrepid American explored the world. His name was John Ledyard, and he was one of America's first and most prolific vagabonders. Born in 1751, Ledyard attended college at Dartmouth, intending to be a missionary to the local Native Americans. Instead of proselytizing the natives, however, he ended up learning their backwoods skills, and at age 23, he chopped down a pine tree, crafted it into a canoe, and paddled 100 miles to the sea. He never looked back from there as he went on to such adventures as sailing with Captain Cook's pioneering Pacific expedition and walking from Sweden to Siberia. In his travels, Ledyard made it a point to mingle with native cultures, not so he could romanticize them, but so he could understand how they perceived reality. In Return Passages, critic Larzer Ziff describes a special quality of social tolerance and endurance in Ledyard, a trait that vagabonders might well do to emulate. He seemed the perfect Democrat, at ease with those who were regarded as his betters, yet free of presumption, self-assured and not self-important, possessed of an urbanity acquired more from contact with the gentlemen of the primitive world than those of the city, and, most importantly, able to accept rebuffs, to undergo in order to go. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 6 This is James Ulrich, a 34-year-old freelance travel writer from Seattle. The best part of travel for me has always been meeting people and being given a window into their lives. Hearing their perspective on their culture and their world opens my eyes and challenges my assumptions. That's the thing to remember. Everyone has a story you've never heard before, and everyone knows something that you don't, and it's worth knowing. This is Powell Berger, a 50-year-old entrepreneur and mom from Kailua, Hawaii. 
We put so many barriers between ourselves and human interaction. Technology advises us where to eat, stay, play. Apps translate even the simplest questions so we don't have to struggle with the language. My best travel moments happen when the technology is left in the backpack. We were invited to dinner at a new friend's home in Cagliari, Sardinia once, where the entire extended family had pitched in to cook. The mother-in-law roasted the whole pig at her house so the host's kitchen wouldn't be too hot for dinner. The neighbor made the raviolis. Grandma made the tiramisu. Grandpa carved the pig, taking time to let my kids see the feet and the head, and poured the wine. We mimed and gestured and used broken English and Italian to communicate. Best dinner ever. This is Johnny Ward, a travel blogger and lifestyle designer from Ireland. It's always the people who make the journey. Fellow travelers, couch surfing hosts, random hookups. Say yes as much as possible. Leave your shy side at home and let loose. Quotes, Chapter 6. Pico Iyer from Why We Travel. Travel is the best way we have of rescuing the humanity of places and saving them from abstraction and ideology. Charles Caleb Colton from Lakin. Those who visit foreign nations but associate only with their own countrymen change their climate but not their customs. They see new meridians but the same men, and with heads as empty as their pockets return home with traveled bodies but untraveled minds. Mary Catherine Bateson from Peripheral Visions. We do not need to understand other people and learn their customs fully to interact with them and learn from the process. It is making the effort to interact without knowing all the rules, improvising certain situations, that allows us to grow. Freya Stark from Perseus and the Wind. The art of learning fundamental common values is perhaps the greatest gain of travel to those who wish to live at ease among their fellows. Josiah Tucker, Instructions for Travelers. Persons who propose to themselves a scheme for traveling generally do it with a view to rub off local prejudices and acquire that enlarged and impartial view of men and things which no single country can afford. Garrison Keeler, Leaving Home. Leaving home is a kind of forgiveness, and when you get among strangers, you're amazed at how decent they seem. No one smirks at you or gossips about you. Nobody resents your successes or relishes your defeats. You get to start over, a sort of redemption. Tip Sheet, Chapter 6. Here are four tips regarding culture shock overseas. 1. Cultural awareness can be quite a challenge when traveling internationally. In some cultures, for example, it's polite to clean your plate during a dinner, whereas other cultures find it more courteous to leave a bit of food on your plate after you finish eating. Body language can also be confusing, as some cultures will consider you uncouth if you eat with your left hand, stand with your hands in your pockets, or beckon someone with your palm facing upward. A good guidebook will give culture-specific pointers for these kinds of issues. 2. Most cultures are much more conservative than ours, and when you're a guest, it's good to respect those manner codes, even if you don't subscribe to them. Always maintain decorum in holy places, even if you aren't religious. And even if you find yourself in the midst of a passionate road romance, try to avoid public displays of affection. 3. Don't be surprised if people in some cultures ask you seemingly intrusive questions. Topics such as age, income, and marital status are not particularly taboo in many parts of the world, so don't get offended if such subjects come up in conversation. Often, people will ask what you think of their country. 
Since some folks might be sensitive to your reply, the best response is not to opine, but simply to ask questions about their culture. Most people will be flattered by your curiosity and happy to teach you about their homeland. 4. If you strongly identify with your immigrant roots, a trip to your ethnic homeland could be the biggest culture shock of all. Regardless of whether your ancestors hailed from Africa, Asia, Europe, or Latin America, odds are your ethnic home will seem far more foreign than you'd expected. Many American-born travelers who take nostalgic pilgrimages back to places like Poland or Korea or Mexico usually get a vivid lesson in just how American they are. Here's nine tips for female vagabonders. It almost goes without saying that women travelers can go to the same places and do the same things on the road as their male counterparts. Not only is there a wide body of literature to prove this, but a cursory visit to any travel scene in the world will reveal similar numbers of male and female vagabonders. Despite this seeming equality, however, women do have a few unique challenges to confront as they travel from place to place. Safety. 1. Most foreign streets are as safe or safer than the streets at home, but as with home, you must be wary of where you wander. Use your guidebook and word of mouth to know which areas to avoid and never walk alone at night. Always be alert and aware of your surroundings, especially at night. 2. Look and act confident, even when you aren't. Don't act lost, even when you are. And don't stand in the street with your map out, since potential criminals and hustlers will take this as an invitation to help you. 3. When traveling alone, be cautious towards offers of hospitality, especially if the hospitality separates you from safe public areas. When in your hotel, make a habit of keeping your door locked at all times and be suspicious if someone knocks on your door late at night. 4. There's always safety in numbers. Even if you are a woman traveling solo, it's rarely difficult to find company in other travelers, male and female alike, should you feel the need. 5. Most men in cultures around the world are honorable and respectful towards female travelers, but the few obnoxious exceptions will always stand out. Sooner or later, you will get harassed, so be ready to deflect the harassment with a no-nonsense attitude and never let it get to you emotionally. 6. The best way to avoid getting harassed in conservative cultures is to abide by the local dress code. Additionally, it never hurts to tone down your everyday courtesies on the road, since there are times when a friendly smile or a reflexive thank you will give men the wrong idea. If a man makes an unwanted pass at you, shoot him down firmly and unambiguously. If he persists or becomes aggressive, and especially if he tries to grope you, a loud, angry no will shame him by drawing public attention to his actions. Often, you can get rid of unwanted attention by mentioning that your big, strapping boyfriend is due to return any minute. Even if no such boyfriend exists, your harasser usually won't stick around to meet him. 7. Most traveler scenes, and beach hangouts in particular, have plenty of local Casanovas who are ready and eager to sweep you off your feet with declarations of love. If you're looking for a fling, fine. Just don't let yourself get charmed and flattered into an uncomfortable situation. Tourist hustlers have their schemes down, so hang on to your wallet as well as your heart. 8. Never presume that you have more to teach local women than they have to teach you. Feminist theory, after all, is largely useless in conservative cultures, so the best way to achieve solidarity with a local woman is to listen to her and try to understand her worldview and way of life. 9. Sometimes you can alienate and distance yourself from local women simply by being socially open and liberated. Thus, make an effort to notice and emulate how females dress and interact with men in your host culture. 
After all, a woman is far more likely to show you hospitality if she can feel certain that you aren't some foreign bimbo out to lure her men into temptation. For more links and resources about cross-cultural travel and travel for women, check out vagabonding.net slash resources. Chapter 7. Get into Adventures A few hundred years ago, adventure travel involved brave expeditions into the terra incognita, the mysterious lands at the edge of the known world, thought to be populated by monsters and mermaids. The more these unknown areas were explored, the smaller the terra incognita became, and gradually the physical limits of the world ceased to be such a mythical secret. By the time Captain Cook's 18th century explorations proved that no great continent existed in the South Pacific, it was no longer possible to sail off the map, and people have had trouble defining what adventure is ever since. As a result, the final act of adventure has been declared with each new global discovery or development over the past two centuries, from the exploration of Inner Africa to Hillary and Norgay's ascent of Everest. In recent years, the very notion of adventure travel has sometimes been written off as a self-deluded farce. When millionaire Dennis Tito paid $20 million to travel into space with Russian cosmonauts, pundits groaned in disdain. A tourist in space illustrates an age when there are very few places left where adventure travel can't be found, wrote Boston Globe editor H.D.S. Greenway. No remote village in the Himalayas or jungle clearing in Borneo is beyond tourism's reach. The implication here is that adventure is still considered purely a physical act, a ritual of putting rugged distance between oneself and one's home. Without the lure of a terra incognita to guide us, such thinking goes, the legacy of adventure travel has been passed on to those who scale cliffs, dive wrecks, and hike jungles. In America especially, where no experience seems worthy of public mention unless it can be measured, competed, or broadcast before a television audience, Modern adventure is associated with extreme sports like ice climbing, street luge, or high-altitude endurance racing. This is all good fun, but any salty vagabonder can tell you that true adventure is not an experience that can be captured on television or sold like a commodity. Indeed, tour companies may have standardized adventure travel into set categories, rafting, mountaineering, skydiving, and so on, but this doesn't mean you have to buy into it, literally or figuratively. There's nothing inherently wrong with extreme sports and organized expeditions, of course, but the real adventure is not something that can be itemized into glossy brochures or sports magazines. In fact, having an adventure is sometimes just a matter of going out and allowing things to happen in a strange and amazing new environment, not so much a physical challenge as a psychic one. Which experience, for example, will require more innovation and persistence? Buying into a guided expedition up some Andean peak where you can eat freeze-dried turkey tetrazzini along the way and call your family via satellite phone on the summit, or lingering for a few weeks in some Bolivian village to learn a local craft without fully knowing the local language. Which is the real adventure? Spending three grand on a Mach 1 MiG jet ride over Kamchatka, or spending the same sum exploring the cities and villages of Siberia by train and motorcycle? Does getting to know your scuba dive master in South Africa carry any more personal potential than chatting up a stranger 10 minutes from your home? Indeed, what is the adventure in traveling such great distances and achieving such daring acts if, like any workaday consumer, you choose your experience in advance and approach it with specific expectations? The secret of adventure, then, is not to carefully seek it out, but to travel in such a way that it finds you. 
To do this, you first need to overcome the protective habits of home and open yourself up to unpredictability. As you begin to practice this openness, you'll quickly discover adventure in the simple reality of a world that defies your expectations. More often than not, you'll discover that adventure is a decision after the fact, a way of deciphering an event or an experience that you can't quite explain. In this way, adventure becomes a part of your daily life on the vagabonding road. We know from the first step, wrote Tim Cahill, that travel is often a matter of confronting our fear with the unfamiliar and the unsettling, of the rooster's head in the soup, of the raggedy edge of unfocused dread, of that cliff face that draws us willy-nilly to its lip and forces us to peer into the void. Thus, when you begin your travels, the mere act of riding a third-class train or using a squat toilet might qualify as an adventure. As such novelties become familiar, you can continue to invite the unknown by weaning yourself from your guidebook, avoiding routines, and allowing yourself to get sidetracked. What better recipe for adventure than putting off deciding your destination until you arrive at the bus station and scan the schedule for unfamiliar names? What better way to discover the unknown than to follow your instincts instead of your plans? Everything that occurs out of necessity, everything expected, repeated day in and day out, is mute, wrote Milan Kundera in The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Only chance can speak to us. We read its message much as gypsies read the images made by coffee grounds at the bottom of the cup. By definition, divining chance means leaving yourself open to both good and bad experiences. Good judgment can come from bad experiences. Good experiences can come from bad judgment. The key in all of this is to trust chance and to steer it in such a way that you're always learning from it. Dare yourself to do simple things that you normally wouldn't consider, whether this means exploring a random canyon, taking up an invitation to dine with a stranger, or just stopping all activity to experience a moment more fully. These are the kinds of humble choices, each of them as bold as bungee jumping, that lead not only to new discoveries, but to an uncommon feeling of hard-won joy. As you make these humbly daring choices, you'll find that adventure is very much a personal pursuit. One of my favorite descriptions of adventure came in an email from Tom Bergenon, an American traveler I originally met in Cairo, who itemized his top Asian travel adventures as follows. 1 hanging out with a Dutch couple in southern Laos, and one night we had a contest to see which animals we could induce to eat the most moths, a cat, a chicken, a gecko, or a dog. Two, getting into a shoving match with a burly Pakistani man in a basement bar in Saigon at about 4 a.m. because of a disagreement about billiard rules, then singing Guns N' Roses together arm-in-arm arm a few minutes later. Three, finding a waterfall buried deep in the jungle in southern Laos and sitting there all day, just listening. Four, wandering around back alleys in Cairo with a demented Hungarian flautist looking for some mythical and probably non-existent coffee shop said to serve up strong ganja in their shisha pipes. And five, climbing Mount Kinabalu in Borneo, the highest mountain in Southeast Asia at 4,100 meters. Not a difficult climb, but thrilling anyway. Not everyone would find adventure in the same quirky, insouciant situations as Tom, but that's the point. Adventure is wherever you allow it to find you, and the first step of any exploration is to discover its potential within yourself. Explore your own higher latitudes, wrote Thoreau and Walden. Be a Columbus to whole new continents within you, opening new channels not of trade but of thought. As with many great explorers from years past, a good portion of your travel adventures will come about by accident. 
Some of these accidents will be positive and serendipitous, like the time I got left behind by my train at the Russia-Mongolian border, then enjoyed a singularly madcap trans-Siberian car chase trying to catch up to it. Other times, of course, travel accidents can be downright awful, like the time I wandered into a cholera epidemic in southern Laos and ended up puking my guts out for three days in a primitive jungle hospital. The trick to being a good adventurer, of course, is to take all such surprises in stride. Good people keep walking whatever happens, taught the Buddha. They do not speak vain words and are the same in good fortune and bad. With this in mind, you should view each new travel frustration, sickness, fear, loneliness, boredom, conflict, as just another curious facet of the vagabonding adventure. Learn to treasure your worst experiences as gripping, if traumatic, new chapters in the epic novel that is your life. Adventurous men enjoy shipwrecks, mutinies, earthquakes, conflagrations, and all kinds of unpleasant experiences, wrote Bertrand Russell. They say to themselves, for example, so this is what an earthquake is like, and it gives them pleasure to have their knowledge of the world increased by this new item. In maintaining this open attitude towards misadventure, of course, it's important that you don't get carried away and inadvertently seek misadventure. It's wise, for example, to keep a positive, adventuresome spirit while you endure malaria, as I did once in a Bangkok hospital, but it's foolish to invite such a misadventure through sloppy health habits. In the same way, getting robbed, as I was once in Istanbul, might be rationalized afterward as part of the grand drama of travel, but it's stupid to let your theft defenses go soft merely to keep things interesting. I mention these two things, sickness and crime, because they are the most preventable misadventures on the vagabonding road. You can easily keep your health up, for example, by staying well-rested, even if this means traveling at a slower pace than you planned, drinking lots of bottled water, and keeping yourself clean, which includes habitually washing your hands before meals. Pre-trip immunizations are vital, of course, but disease prevention should also be part of your day-to-day -day habits, especially in regard to how you eat. Indeed, daring yourself to eat exotic foods, from boiled sheep's eyes to fried palm grubs to haggis, should be a deliberate part of your adventure, but suffering from exotic gastrointestinal sickness should not. An old colonial slogan that still makes a useful starting point in dealing with food is, if you can cook it, boil it, or peel it, you can eat it, otherwise forget it. When eating at restaurants and food stands, look for establishments with lots of customers, always a sure sign of tasty eats, and healthy-looking employees. Make sure that any meat you order is well-cooked when you're in less developed countries, and be wary of milk, which may not be pasteurized, beef, which may not be beef, leafy salads, which likely haven't been washed with purified water, and shellfish. Non-purified water, ice included, should be generally avoided. Also, be sure to check your bottled water for a broken seal, which often means that the bottle has been fished out of the trash and refilled with tap water. When you first start traveling, don't react to strange foods or unorthodox routines by under-eating. Regardless of your food preferences, such as vegetarianism, make sure you maintain a balanced diet with lots of fruits, vegetables, grains, and protein. If you aren't too daring in the culinary department, or if you think you'll disagree with the food in certain areas, bring along vitamin supplements. Indulge yourself in Western food from time to time, but keep in mind that a restaurant's food isn't necessarily healthy or clean or tasty merely because the place has an English-language menu and serves up pizza, club sandwiches, or an American breakfast. In Pushkar, India, I once ate lunch at a restaurant that specialized in Indian, Mexican, Chinese, Italian, Greek, and Israeli food, and I find it no small coincidence that I suffered stomach problems quite soon thereafter. 
Of all the gastrointestinal hazards in faraway lands, a tough one to avoid is traveler's diarrhea, which is caused not just by tainted food, but by general changes in diet and climate. The best way to deal with traveler's D is to simply keep yourself well hydrated and eat bland foods, rice, bread, yogurt, for a few days until it improves. If any kind of sickness persists for more than a few days, it can't hurt to relate your symptoms to a local doctor or pharmacist. Most will be familiar with the local maladies and happy to set you up with inexpensive prescriptions for whatever ails you. Of course, a small first aid kit full of bandages, antiseptic, painkillers, and personal medicines should always be a part of your travel gear. If your sickness threatens to get serious, make your way to a major city and check into a modern hospital. Crime and scams are common wherever travelers are found, though they are generally no more dangerous than the average annoyances in your hometown. All it takes to avoid such theft is a little awareness. Many local scams are detailed in guidebooks, for example, so be sure to study up whenever you arrive in a new region. Word of mouth among travelers is also a good way to keep tabs on this. Wherever you go, however, a few basic precautions will always apply. For starters, avoid bringing expensive or irreplaceable items on the road, and don't flaunt what wealth you do have. Keep cash in discreet places, such as a money belt, a sock, or a hidden pocket, and be wary of public distractions and dense crowds, as this is where pickpockets tend to operate. When staying at a hostel or guest house, keep your extra cash in the safe and write out an itemized receipt with the clerk to ensure that everything is in order when it comes to retrieve your things. In tourist areas, be wary of pushy new friends who insist on giving you free shopping or sightseeing tours. Don't fall into quick money schemes with locals or travelers that entail gem or carpet export duty-free resales, exchange rate margins, or drugs, as these are all time-honored scams. Don't wander around drunk at night, and don't let nosy locals know that you've been in their country for only a few days. This marks you as an easy sucker for con artists. Better to fudge a bit and claim that you've been there for a month. In maintaining this awareness against theft and scams, don't overcompensate and fall into knee-jerk paranoia, a sure way to ruin your experience anywhere. Instead, cultivate a simple and instinctive habit of diligence as you travel. I'm writing this book in a peaceful residential hotel in southern Thailand, for instance, but I always padlock my door when I leave my room. I simply find it easier to keep a habit of caution than to continuously try and guess when things are and are not safe. Though prevention and diligence go a long way, of course, there is no foolproof method against misadventure on the road. Should sickness or crime catch you off guard, the best response is to humbly accept these things as a part of life's adventure. Life has no other discipline to impose, if we would but realize it, than to accept life unquestioningly, wrote Henry Miller. Everything we deny, denigrate, or despise serves to defeat us in the end. What seems nasty, painful, evil can become a source of beauty, joy, and strength if faced with an open mind. Every moment is golden for him who has the vision to realize it as such. Once you actualize this vision, in good fortune and bad, you'll be able to discover and explore a whole new kind of terra incognita within yourself. Vagabonding Profile – The Pioneering Women of Vagabonding Historically, adventure travel is too often seen as the exclusive pursuit of rugged men, from Richard Burton to Ernest Shackleton to Edmund Hillary, a quick review of travel accounts from the last 250 years, however, reveals that many of history's most intrepid and insightful adventurers were women. Mary Wollstonecraft, Isabella Lucy Bird, Alexandra David Neal, Mary Kingsley, Freya Stark, Frances Trollope, Amelia Edwards, 
Emily Hahn, Ida Pfeiffer, Rosita Forbes, Rose Wilder Lane, Rebecca West, and Martha Gellhorn represent a mere sampling of women who won renown for their adventures. They traveled to places as far flung as Arabia and the Arctic, Africa and the American frontier. In addition to shattering the stereotype that brawn and machismo are prerequisites to striking off into the wilderness, these female explorers also found adventure in the human encounters and simple day-to-day -day unknown. Isabel Eberhardt, who explored North Africa in the 19th century, unapologetically summed up the logic that fired these pioneering women vagabonders. The cowardly belief that a person must stay in one place is too reminiscent of the unquestioning resignation of animals, beasts of burden stupefied by servitude, and yet always willing to accept the slipping on of the harness. There are limits to every domain and laws to govern every organized power, but the vagrant owns the whole vast earth that ends only at the non-existent horizon, and her empire is an intangible one, for her domination and enjoyment of it are things of the spirit. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 7 Hi, I'm Kristen Mancosa, a 24-year-old freelance writer from Erie, Pennsylvania. Adventure, at least for me, is the idea of a life beyond the walls of a cubicle and outside of the realm of nine-to-fives. It's the feeling of being humbled by what you have and awed by what the world really is and has to offer. This is James Ulrich, a 34-year-old freelance travel writer from Seattle. Seeking a more nuanced definition of adventure can lead to unforgettably rich travel experiences. Can't run with the bulls? Can't cross the Sahara? Try doing something that you may find every bit as daunting. Making friends out of strangers. Connecting with the locals instead. Open your mind to the possibilities of a new connection. You'll be rewarded with a much deeper perspective of the culture you came so far to experience. And long after the adventurers are nursing their sunburns and snake bites, you'll have friends for a lifetime and threads of their culture woven into your own life's tapestry. This is Wendy Rangham, a 42-year-old writer from England. Life is adventure. Travel is adventure with a different address. Seek and you shall find is not an adage that works in this case. Adventure has a way of finding people, and some people it finds more often than others. Quotes for Chapter 7 George Santayana, The Philosophy of Travel. We need sometimes to escape into open solitudes, into aimlessness, into the moral holiday of running some pure hazard in order to sharpen the edge of life, to taste hardship, and to be compelled to work desperately for a moment, no matter what. Cloud Levi Strauss, Tris Tropique. Exploration is not so much a covering of surface distance as a study in depth, a fleeting episode, a fragment of landscape or a remark overheard may provide the only means of understanding and interpreting areas which would otherwise remain barren of meaning. Henry David Thoreau, Walden Rise free from care before dawn and seek adventures. Let the moon find thee by other lakes, and the night overtake thee everywhere at home. There are no larger fields than these, no worthier games than may here be played. Aristotle, Ethics. The man who is truly good and wise will bear with dignity whatever fortune sends and will always make the best of his circumstances. Théophile Gautier, Wanderings in Spain. The pleasure in traveling consists of the obstacles, the fatigue, and even the danger. 
What charm can anyone find in an excursion when he is always sure of reaching his destination, of having horses ready waiting for him, a soft bed, an excellent supper, and all of the eases and comforts he can enjoy in his own home? One of the great misfortunes of modern life is the want of any sudden surprise and the absence of all adventures. Everything is so well arranged. Rilke, Letters to a Young Poet We have no reason to mistrust our world, for it is not against us. Has it terrors? They are our terrors. Has it abysses? Those abysses belong to us. Our dangers at hand, we must try to love them. How should we be able to forget those ancient myths about dragons that at the last moment turn into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons of our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us once beautiful and brave. Tip Sheet, Chapter 7 Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for up-to-date resources on travel, health, and safety. Part 4. The Long Run Chapter 8. Keep It Real Though now considered to be one of the great monuments of ancient civilization, the lost city of Angkor was not even known to the Western world until French travelers began exploring Cambodia in the mid-19th century. Contrary to popular belief, the massive, awe-inspiring Khmer ruins were first discovered and documented not by explorer Henri Mouho, but by Charles-Emile Boliveau, a French priest who visited the site in 1850. Having been trained in the strict ways of piety, Boliveau was somewhat horrified by the sight of the ancient stone city with its voluptuous sculptures and pagan motifs. One year after Boliveau published his weak-kneed observations in Paris, Mouho stumbled across Anchor and viewed the ancient city not through the eyes of his discipline, he was a naturalist, but with naive eyes of wonder and curiosity. When Mouho's travel account was eventually published, the public shared in his exuberance and Anchor has been the site of archaeological study and pilgrimage ever since. In recounting this story, it's tempting to write off Father Boliveau as a pious nitwit, but most of us tend to make the same mistakes when we travel. Just like the stuffy French priest, we tend to view our new surroundings through the petty prejudices of home rather than seeing things for what they are. Our eyes find it easier on a given occasion to produce a picture already often produced than to seize upon the divergence and novelty of an impression, wrote Friedrich Nietzsche. It is difficult and painful for the ear to listen to anything new. We hear strange music badly. Unlike Bolivo, most of us don't stand to lose our place in the history books if we misinterpret the discoveries of our travels. Nonetheless, it's important, even on a personal level, to not just look at things as we travel, but to see things for what they are. The difference between looking and seeing on the road is frequently summed up with two somewhat opposable terms, tourist and traveler. According to this distinction, travelers are the ones who truly see their surroundings, whereas tourists just superficially look at attractions. Tourists, moreover, are thought to lack depth and taste, and their pursuits are considered inauthentic and dehumanized. Travelers, interested and engaged, are exactly the opposite. For the past century or so, critics and travel writers have fleshed out this tourist-traveler contrast with an entire canon of aphorisms. The traveler sees what he sees, wrote G.K. Chesterton in the 1920s. The tourist sees what he has come to see. The traveler was active. He went strenuously in search of people, of adventure, of experience, Daniel Borston pined in 1961. The tourist is passive. He expects interesting things to happen to him. Tourists don't know where they've been, observed Paul Theroux 20 years ago. Travelers don't know where they're going. 
Travelers are those who leave their assumptions at home, and tourists are those who don't, wrote Pico Iyer in 2000. These are all apt observations, of course, but they have inadvertently contributed to an odd perversion of the very idea they're trying to communicate. Indeed, so well known is the rhetorical difference between tourists, whom we scorn, and travelers, whom we want to be, that the distinction has turned into a social exercise instead of an experiential one. Once, while hanging out in Dahab, Egypt, I talked to a British fellow who had nothing but contempt for what he called tourists. They all fly straight to Sharm el-Sheikh, a ritzy resort town near Dahab, and spend their time in luxury hotels, he said. They might take an Aircon bus to see Mount Sinai, but apart from that, they just sunbathe and eat pizza like they could at home. None of them really experience Egypt. I agreed that this kind of travel left a lot to be desired, but the more the guy talked, the more I wondered how he considered himself any different. In four months of travel, he'd spent three and a half months living in a reed hut in Dahab, and he'd spent most of his time there scuba diving and smoking dope with other travelers. The only lifestyle difference I could discern between him and the tourists of Sharm el-Sheikh was that he ate falafel, wore a black checkered Arab keffiyeh, and survived on $8 a day instead of 200 I mention this not to condemn the guy's lifestyle, but to point out how the tourist-traveler distinction has largely degenerated into a cliquish sort of fashion dichotomy. Instead of seeking the challenges that true travel requires, we can simply point to a few stereotypical tourists, make some jokes at their expense, and consider ourselves travelers by default. In reality, travel is not a social contest, and vagabonding has never represented a caste on the tourist-traveler hierarchy. Depending upon circumstances, a sincere vagabonder could variously be called a traveler or a tourist, a pilgrim or a satyr, a victor or a victim, an individual seeker or a demographic trend. Indeed, the main conceit in trying to distinguish travelers from tourists is that you end up with a flimsy facade of presumed insiders and outsiders. By the vacuous standards of fashion, insiders and outsiders are necessary, but in the realm of travel, where by definition you are always a guest in foreign places, such a distinction is ridiculous. Putting on a cocksure and superior air might win you points at a nightclub in your hometown, but such pretense on the road will only cheapen your travel experience. Instead of worrying about whether you're a tourist or a traveler, the secret to seeing your surroundings on the road is simply to keep things real. On the surface, this seems like a simple enough proposition. Wherever you go, there you are, says a silly adage, and simply being there shouldn't be a very tough task. The thing is, few of us ever are where we are. Instead of experiencing the reality of a moment or a day, our minds and souls are elsewhere, obsessing on the past or the future, fretting and fantasizing about other situations. At home, this is one way of dealing with day-to-day -day doldrums. On the road, it's a sure way to miss out on the very experiences that stand to teach you something. This is why vagabonding is not to be confused with a mere vacation where the only goal is escape. With escape in mind, vacationers tend to approach their holiday with a grim resolve, determined to make their experiences live up to their expectations. On the vagabonding road, you prepare for the long haul knowing that the predictable and the unpredictable, the pleasant and the unpleasant, are not separate, but part of the same ongoing reality. You can try to make vagabonding conform to your fantasies, of course, but this strategy has a way of making travel irrelevant. Indeed, vagabonding is, at its best, a rediscovery of reality itself. Thus, as the initial days of your travel experience stretch into weeks and months, you should let go of your pre-trip stereotypes and exchange two-dimensional expectations for living people, living places, and living life. This process is the only way to break through the static postcard fantasy and emerge into the intense beauty of the real. 
In this way, seeing as you travel is somewhat of a spiritual exercise, a process not of seeking interesting surroundings, but of being continually interested in whatever surrounds you. In many ways, embracing reality is daunting, not because of its hazards, but because of its complexities. Thus, the best way to confront reality is not with a set method of interpretation, which will allow you to recognize only patterns you already know, but with a sincere attitude of open-mindedness. The challenge in cultivating open-mindedness, of course, is that this very notion can get confused before you ever leave home. While traveling in the Middle East, for instance, I once met a Canadian woman who just traveled to a remote Syrian Catholic monastery in the gorgeous desert mountains outside of Damascus. Not only had she enjoyed her three-day visit, she told me, but she'd also managed to hold on to her free-thinking principles by steadfastly refusing the monks' offers to join the daily church service. Somehow this attitude struck me as a bit skewed. In the conformist confines of small-town Alberta, Refusing to go to church might be a sign of liberation, but as the guest of an isolated Syrian monastery, one that you've taken great pains to visit, no less, refusing to go to church is not merely narrow-minded, but rude. It's important to remember that what passes for cultural open-mindedness at home won't always apply wholesale to your travels. Indeed, you might live in Chinatown, dance to fellow cootie tunes, wear a sarong, practice the didgeridoo, date an Estonian-American and eat enchiladas in New York, but that doesn't necessarily mean you know squat about how the people of China, Nigeria, Thailand, Australia, Estonia, or Mexico live and think. Interestingly, one of the initial impediments to open-mindedness is not ignorance, but ideology. This is especially true in America, where, particularly in progressive circles, we have politicized open-mindedness to the point that it isn't so open-minded anymore. Indeed, regardless of whether your sympathies lean to the left or the right, you aren't going to learn anything new if you continually use politics as a lens through which to view the world. At home, political convictions are a tool for getting things done within your community. On the road, political convictions are a clumsy set of experiential blinders, compelling you to seek evidence for conclusions you've already drawn. This is not to say that holding political beliefs is wrong. It's just that politics are naturally reductive and the world is infinitely complex. Cling too fiercely to your ideologies and you'll miss the subtle realities that politics can't address. You'll also miss the chance to learn from people who don't share your worldview. If a Japanese college student tells you that finding a good husband is more important than feminist independence, she is not contradicting your world so much as giving you an opportunity to see hers. If a Paraguayan barber insists that dictatorship is superior to democracy, you might just learn something by putting yourself in his shoes and hearing him out. In this way, open-mindedness is a process of listening and considering, of muting your compulsion to judge what is right and wrong, good and bad, proper and improper, and having the tolerance and patience to try and see things for what they are. Another ironic impediment to reality is the very idealism that inspires us to travel in the first place. In our travel daydreams, we transport ourselves to places that we believe will be prettier, purer, and simpler than what we encounter at home. When these idealized conditions prove less than real, however, we tend to cling to our daydreams instead of fully engaging reality. In some cases, such as the ethno-tourism villages I discussed earlier, we cheat reality by overlooking the details, blue jeans or cell phones, that don't match up to our pre-modern ideals. In other cases, the naive optimism we bring into travel causes us to ultimately disdain the very cultures we'd idealized. When I was living in Busan, for example, I met many expatriate teachers who'd moved overseas to experience another culture, only to become embittered when they discovered that Korean culture can be downright cutthroat and workaholic. 
These folks were experiencing another culture all right, but their myopic idealism backfired on them when they realized that an Asian society could be just as frenetic and impersonal as their own. In this way, any idealized search for the other threatens disappointment in a world where the other can often resemble home. Just as skepticism should not be confused with cynicism, however, embracing realism need not be confused with falling into pessimism. One particularly potent strain of traveler pessimism is the notion that modern influences are destroying native societies, or that certain cultures were more real sometime in the not-too-distant past. According to this assumption, any given society, Kuna or Bedouin or Maasai, was somehow better 20 years ago, before it was spoiled. What such reflexive pessimism overlooks, of course, is that societies have always changed and that tradition is a dynamic phenomenon. The evaluation of tourism cannot be accomplished against a static background, wrote tourism scholar David J. Greenwood. Much of what we see as destruction is construction. Some is the result of a lack of any other viable option, and some the result of choices that could be made differently. Beyond this, much of our concern about the evils of change within pre-modern cultures is less an interest in the quality of local life than in our own desire to experience an untainted culture. As anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss pointed out 50 years ago, mourning the perceived purity of yesterday will only cause us to miss out on the true dynamic of today. While I complain of being able to glimpse no more than a shadow of the past, he wrote in Tristropique, I may be insensitive to reality as it is taking shape at this very moment. A few hundred years hence, in this same place, another traveler as despairing as myself will mourn the disappearance of what I might have seen but failed to see. Thus, the purest way to see a culture is simply to accept and experience it as it is now, even if you have to put up with satellite dishes in Kazakhstan, cyber cafes in Malawi, and fast food restaurants in Belize. After all, as Thomas Merton reported when asked if he'd seen the real Asia during his trip to India, it's all real, as far as I can see. One final reality-numbing process worth mentioning is the pursuit of fun on the road. Fun, of course, can be had in any given moment of your travels, but I'm thinking specifically about that bedrock institution of fun, partying. To be sure, your travels won't be the same if you don't occasionally take time to put on a buzz, let your inhibitions down, and get to know new people. When you first hit the road, in fact, you probably won't be able to party enough, as the company will seem superb, the drinks cheap, and the settings perfect. As you get past the first few weeks of your travel experience, however, you'll discover that partying on the road is different from partying at home. At home, partying is a way of celebrating the weekend or taking a pause from the workaday world. On the road, every day is a weekend, every moment a break from the workaday world. Thus, falling into a nightly ritual of partying, as can easily happen at traveler hangouts anywhere on the planet, is a sure way to overlook the subtlety of places, stunt your travel creativity, and trap yourself in the patterns of home. Granted, you can have plenty of fun in the process, but if you travel the world merely to indulge in the same kinds of diversions you enjoy at home, you'll end up selling your vagabonding experience short. Of all the intoxicants you can find on the road, including a national beer for nearly every country in the world, marijuana deserves a particular mention here, primarily because it's so popular with travelers. Much of this popularity is due to the fact that marijuana is a relatively harmless diversion, again, provided you aren't caught with it, that can intensify certain impressions and sensations of travel. The problem with marijuana, however, is that it's the travel equivalent of watching television. It replaces real sensations with artificially enhanced ones. Because it doesn't force you to work for a feeling, it creates passive experiences that are only vaguely connected to the rest of your life. 
The drug vision remains a sort of dream that cannot be brought over into daily life, wrote Peter Matheson in The Snow Leopard. Old mists may be banished, that is true, but the alien chemical agent forms another mist, maintaining the separation of the I from the true experience of the one. Moreover, chemical highs have a way of distracting you from the utterly stoning natural high of travel itself. After all, roasting a bowl might spice up a random afternoon in Dayton, Ohio, but is it really all that necessary along the Sumatran shores of Lake Toba, the mountain basins of Nepal, or the desert plateaus of Patagonia? As Salvador Dali quipped, I never took drugs because I am drugs. With this in mind, strive to be drugs as you travel, to patiently embrace the raw personal sensation of unmediated reality, an experience far more affecting than any intoxicant can promise. Vagabonding Profile, Ed Byrne in the 1970s, when counterculture excesses threatened to degrade Jack Kerouac's ecstatic road visions into a self-indulgent caricature, Ed Burns' offbeat travel guides redeemed independent travel for everyday vagabonders. Mixing inspiration with down-to-earth advice, Burns' vagabonding in Europe and North Africa and vagabonding in the USA inspired a generation of travelers to disregard the clichés of fashion and seek the simple joy of direct experience on the road. Raised in New Jersey and Florida by Polish immigrant parents, Byrne has over the course of his life been a sailor, a professional photographer, a publisher, a writer, an editor, a designer, and a poet. In Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa, Byrne underscored that long-term travel is not the exclusive realm of rebels and mystics, but is open to anyone willing to embrace the vivid textures of reality. We all have stuck in us deep somewhere a keenness for excitement, a savoring for the kooky, a leap-for-life outlook. From this comes the catalytic impetus, without which all other requirements mean nothing. Everyday types are as likely to have this synchronon as the obvious icon kickers. The person who strikes off for himself is no hero, nor necessarily even unconventional, but to a greater degree than most people, he or she thinks and acts independently. The vagabond frees in himself the latent urge to live closer to the edge of experience. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 8 I'm Daniel Harbeck, a 43-year-old instructional designer from Bartlett, Illinois. The key to keeping your travels real is to shed extra baggage, dismiss predefined notions, and leave limiting walls behind. It's leaving behind the wristwatch manacle to live by the inner clock. It's finding pieces of your soul in remote corners of the world. This is Aaron Atencio a 33-year-old avid world traveler from Colorado. Too often, travelers pride themselves on avoiding touristy places. Remember that just about every major tourist spot is popular for a good reason. Yes, tourists flock there now in droves alongside tacky souvenirs and inflated prices. But strive to be the kind of traveler who can look past that and see the draw of the location for its original appeal. You're traveling in a time where very few places are left in this world that have yet to be discovered. Finding a perfect, isolated spot may be a challenge, but seeking a perfect experience or a local connection will lead to a much richer experience. This is Tim Ferriss, a 36-year-old author from San Francisco, California. This is a long one, so bear with me. I did a year and a half of travel around the world and had my own existential crises. So here it goes. 
Let's suppose that you decide to dip your toe in dreams like relocating to the Caribbean for island hopping or taking a safari in the Serengeti. It will be wonderful, unforgettable, amazing, and you should totally do it. There will come a time, however, be it three weeks or three months later, when you won't be able to drink another damn pina colada or photograph another red-assed baboon. That day will come. Self-criticism and existential panic attacks usually start around this time. You'll say to yourself, but this is what I always wanted. How could I be bored? Oh my God, what am I going to do with myself? So try not to freak out and fuel the fire. This is totally normal among all high performers who downshift after working hard for a long time. The smarter and more goal-oriented you are, the tougher these growing pains will be. Don't be afraid of the existential or social challenges. You may feel somewhat isolated. You may feel like you can't relate to your peers back home. Freedom is like a new sport. In the beginning, the sheer newness of it is exciting enough to keep things interesting at all times. Once you've learned the basics, though, it becomes clear that having less work is easy. It's filling the void with more life that is hard. Finding excitement, as it turns out, takes more thought than simple workaholism. But don't fret. That's where all the rewards are. So keep it up. Quotes, Chapter 8 Walt Whitman by Blue Ontario's Shore Piety and conformity to them that like, I am he who tauntingly compels men, women, nations, crying, leap from your seats and contend for your lives. Who are you that wanted only to be told what you knew before? Who are you who wanted only a book to join you in your nonsense? Samuel Johnson from the Anecdotes of Samuel Johnson The use of traveling is to regulate imagination by reality, and instead of thinking how things may be, to see them as they really are. John Muir, The Wilderness World of John Muir Most people are on the world, not in it having no conscious sympathy or relationship to anything about them. Undiffused, separate, and rigidly alone like marbles of polished stone, touching but separate. Robert Louis Stevenson from Travels with a Donkey For my part, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move, to feel the needs and hitches of our life more nearly, to come down off this feather bed of civilization and find the globe granite underfoot and strewn with cutting flints. Leroy Jones from a political poem. Luxury, then, is a way of being ignorant, comfortably. From the Bhagavad Gita, the unreal never is, the real never is not. This truth indeed has been seen by those who can see the true. Michael Crichton travels. Often I go to some distant region of the world to be reminded of who I really am. Stripped of your ordinary surroundings, your friends, your daily routines, your refrigerator full of your food, your closet full of your clothes, you are forced into direct experience. Such direct experience inevitably makes you aware of who it is that is having the experience. That's not always comfortable, but it is always invigorating. Tip Sheet Chapter 8 all too often, responsible travel is a notion that gets hijacked by ecotourism marketers and political demagogues. Fortunately, responsible travel doesn't require that you become an ecotour client or a shrill activist. Rather, conscientious vagabonding merely requires informed awareness as you travel from place to place. And for all the talk about ecological and cultural sustainability, few people actually understand these concepts. 
Knowing your science, not your politics, is what will best inform your decisions as you tread lightly around the world. Please go to vagabonding.net slash resources for more information about socially and environmentally responsible travel. Chapter 9. Be Creative In countless caper movies over the years, the goal of the protagonist has been to steal an eye-popping sum of money, a million dollars is always a good amount, and escape to some tropical paradise in a quiet corner of the world. To successfully reach this faraway Shangri-La, loot in hand, is what constitutes a happy ending, and not much screen time is devoted to what happens after. The implication here is that a stack of money in a tropical hideaway provide the ideal ingredients for personal happiness, and that nothing better could be asked from life than to sit around and drink rum cocktails until death finally claims you. As with many things cinematic, of course, this scenario is an escapist cliché, and you don't need to rob a bank to prove it. Indeed, just take a modest, non-heisted sum, five grand, say, to a quiet, inexpensive beach in Guatemala, Greece, or Goa, and see what happens. In all likelihood, your enthusiasm for sitting around smeared in cocoa butter will run out before your money does. This is not because tropical beaches in these places are boring, to the contrary, they are some of the most beautiful and blissful spots in the world, but because what most people consider paradise is defined in contrast to the stresses of home. Take away those stresses for a couple of months and it's hard to wring much passion or esteem from hanging out on a beach and not doing much. Few vagabonders restrict their travels to one beach scene, of course, but the point is that you can never dream up the perfect travel formula while you're still sitting at home. What seems like paradise when you're planning your travels, be it white sand beaches, archaeological wonders, or exotic textile markets, will eventually seem somewhat normal after a few weeks or months of living on the road. Moreover, so many new things will happen in the process of reaching these places that you'll probably outgrow your original travel motivations. As new experiences and insights take you in surprising new directions, you'll gradually come to understand why long-time travelers insist that the journey itself is far more important than any destination. At times, in fact, the sheer wealth of options in your journey will seem overwhelming. One of the most stressful moments on my first trip across Asia, for example, came not from some physical or emotional trauma, but from reading discount travel ads in the Bangkok Post. Every major region in the Eastern Hemisphere, I discovered, was reachable from Thailand for under $400. Within two days and at no great expense, I could find myself in Paris, Beirut, Melbourne, Tokyo, Cape Town, or Bali, and embarked on a completely different and amazing new adventure than the one I was starting in Thailand. When I checked into my Khao San Road guesthouse that night, I could hardly sleep. Had I really made the right choice in coming to Southeast Asia? Hadn't I, after all, always wanted to see Australia? Might Africa have provided a wilder adventure? Didn't Europe promise more romance? In retrospect, I see that my stress wasn't the product of indecision. The conflict arose from my impossible desire to be in all those places at once. In knowing that so many destinations were cheaply accessible at that very moment, I suddenly feared I would never again get the chance to see them. Travel, I was beginning to realize, was a metaphor not just for the countless options life offers, but also for the fact that choosing one option reduces you to the parameters of that choice. Thus, in knowing my possibilities, I also knew my limitations. Ultimately, I learned to stop looking at my journey as one final apocalyptic chance to see the world, and started enjoying it on its own esoteric terms. As I learned to focus my travel energies onto my immediate surroundings, I eventually stretched what I thought would be a one-year Asia sojourn into 30 intense months. 
In this way, vagabonding is less like a getaway caper than a patient kind of aimlessness, quite similar, in fact, to what Australian Aborigines call walkabout. Culturally, the walkabout ritual is when Aborigines leave their work for a time and return to their native lifestyle in the outback. On a broader and more mythical level, however, walkabout acts as a kind of remedy when the duties and obligations of life cause one to lose track of his or her true self. To correct this, one merely leaves behind all possessions except for survival essentials and starts walking. What's intriguing about walkabout is that there's no physical goal. It simply continues until one becomes whole again. In making reference to Aboriginal mysticism, I'm not suggesting that the goal of vagabonding is to become whole. After all, wholeness implies closure, and vagabonding is an ongoing process of finding new things. You can, however, recover and discover parts of yourself, psychic and emotional parts you never knew existed, as you travel through the world. And, as you do this, you'll also leave behind aspects of yourself, habits, prejudices, even pieces of your heart. Striking the right balance between finding yourself and losing yourself on the road, of course, requires creativity. Creativity is particularly important after you've been on the road for a long time, because inevitably you'll fall into a kind of road routine. Certain activities, sleeping, eating, reading, socializing, wandering, will become a fixture of each day. This is good and well, routines make your day more efficient after all, but you should be careful not to let your days or destinations blur together. Once this begins to happen, once you feel yourself getting jaded to the long haul, it's time to mix your travels up a bit. How you choose to do this will depend on how you've already been traveling. If you've mainly been visiting cities, for example, perhaps it's time to hit the countryside. If you've been spending most of your time in the backcountry, try a taste of city life. If you've been traveling alone, seek out new companions. If you've been traveling with a partner, split up for a while. If you haven't done much recreation yet, rent a kayak or take an open water scuba course or learn how to rock climb. If all you've done is play, maybe it's time to head out and wander with no particular goal in mind. Sometimes it's not a bad idea to take a break from your shoestring budget and indulge yourself in a gourmet dinner or a night in a luxury hotel just to see how the other half travels. At other times, buying into a crowded group tour of a local site can be an interesting and an ironically entertaining change of pace from independent travel. Occasionally, when you feel like you've overdosed on local color, you might want to catch a taste of home. One of my guilty pleasures of Bombay, for example, was watching the movie Charlie's Angels on the big screen after eating a burger at an American-style restaurant. The following day, I had nearly as much fun watching a four-hour Bollywood musical and trying to decipher the Hindi plot. One surefire method to keep travel from getting too predictable is to occasionally acquire or improvise your own transportation. In Laos, I bought a local fishing boat with some other travelers and drove it down the Mekong River for three adrenaline-filled weeks. In Burma, I bought a Chinese-made one-speed bicycle in Mandalay and pedaled it south for ten days before trading it for a fistful of pearls. In Lithuania, I stuck out my thumb on the side of the road in Vilnius and found myself four countries away, in Hungary, three days later. In Israel, I did away with transport altogether and walked across Galilee, Jesus-style. In addition to being unforgettable experiences, each of these adventures ended up costing me next to nothing. I still intend to try other classic forms of self-transport, such as a used car in Australia, a used horse in Argentina, a used camel in Morocco, and an off-the-assembly-line infield motorcycle in India. However or wherever you happen to travel, your experience of a place will obviously be different if you stay there for two days, two months, or two years. Most places you'll only be able to experience for a few days, of course, but just because you're traveling doesn't mean you must always be on the move. 
What dost thou think, then, of seeing the world, taunts Peleg in Herman Melville's Moby Dick? Can't you see the world where you stand? This in mind, it's advisable to pick an appealing place at some point in your travels and settle down for a few weeks or months and get to know it better. Where you choose to do this is entirely up to your whim. Perhaps you'll linger at a place you'd always dreamed of knowing. Perhaps you'll happen upon a place or a person that you fall in love with. Or maybe you'll just go on instinct. In two and a half years of traveling the Orient, I lingered for three weeks or more in Bangkok, Riga, Cairo, and Pushkar. My reasons for hanging out in each location were not always that inspired. In Pushkar, for example, I was trying to get some rest and overcome a bout of stomach sickness. Rather, each experience just sort of made sense when I was living it. While wandering, you experience a mysteriously organic process, observed Joseph Campbell. It's like a tree growing. It doesn't know where it's growing next. A branch may grow this way and then another way. When you look back, you'll see that this will have been an organic development. Thus, you'll often find that your decision to linger someplace is a simple flowering of your ongoing explorations. Once you've found a special place to call your own for a few weeks or months, your options there are virtually endless, and you needn't have a concise plan going in. There are deeper reasons to travel. Itches and tickles on the underbelly of the unconscious mind, wrote Jeff Greenwald in Shopping for Buddhas. We go where we need to go, and then try and figure out what we're doing there. At the outset, you might linger in a place just to slow down, goof off, and rest up for more travel. Should you want to catch up on some reading, feel free to string up a hammock and plow your way through a stack of books. Should you have hobbies, cooking, painting, music, meditation, you might take the time to deepen and diversify such interests within an exotic new context. Should you feel more social, you might choose to wander through your adopted hometown and figure out the inner workings of the place, how the houses are made, how the food is cooked, how the crops are farmed. At times, you might even be invited to lend a hand in these activities. In the process, you can make local friends by joining in light-hearted public activities such as soccer matches, backgammon games, or afternoon cocktails. You might even learn unexpected things about local customs, religions, or values merely by observing the habitual rhythms of the day. Should aimless curiosity not fit your disposition, however, there are plenty of more structured ways to experience a destination. Many places, for example, will offer classes in local disciplines, Thai massage, Italian cooking, Indian yoga, Argentine tango, and language classes anywhere are a great way to immerse yourself in a local culture. Work is another way to deepen your experiences of places as you travel. Rarely will you find travel jobs that make you lots of money, but you should at least be able to break even on living expenses while meeting interesting people and finding unique experiences. Teaching English is a popular and easy-to-find work option on the road, but there are plenty of alternatives, many of them dealing with the labor or hospitality industries. Farm work, for example, is a common traveler's employment in New Zealand. Fruit harvest is a seasonal job option in France. Labor in kibbutz collectives, usually farms or factories, is a time-honored traveler's option in Israel. Landing a job at a hostel or resort is often an opportunity in areas of the world with heavy tourist traffic. None of these jobs are all that glamorous, of course, but they will allow you to make a bit of cash while you view certain corners of the world from a new angle. The evenings I spent working as a bar tout in Jerusalem didn't earn me much travel money, for example. But all those hours of handing flyers to disinterested pedestrians allowed me to learn humility in a way that enriched my perspective of the city. Though such work need not be arranged before you start your travels, specialty publications such as Transitions Abroad are great for finding out what short-term jobs and volunteer opportunities are out there. Should making money not be a factor, volunteer work is another great, inexpensive way to get to know a place. 
When I traveled across North America, for instance, none of Mississippi's tourist attractions were as memorable as the days I spent hauling concrete for a volunteer house-building project outside of Canton. Such volunteer pursuits can be directed toward randomly discovered situations as you travel, for example, briefly lending your medical, carpentry, or English skills as you come across communities in need. Other volunteer work, from building irrigation systems in El Salvador to teaching computer skills in Tibet, can be found through more formal routes such as state agencies, religious groups, and non-governmental aid organizations. However you choose to donate your skills, try to be honest with yourself and do so out of a personal calling instead of some vague sense of obligation or patchwork political morality. Volunteer work, after all, is a serious business, and you stand to harm more than help the cause if your convictions are less than true. Be patient in finding your volunteer work and be humble in doing your volunteer work. In most cases, volunteers to a certain area end up learning as many lessons as they teach. This is why volunteering is not just socially, but personally useful, since it will leaven your idealism with eye-opening doses of reality. Learning about fundamental and sometimes unbridgeable cultural and historical gaps between peoples is essential, noted travel writer and ex-Peace Corps volunteer Jeffrey Taylor. One must not delude oneself that we are all alike or destined to be members of some sort of global family. Indeed, acknowledging differences and avoiding superficial cures is not just a valuable lesson of volunteer work, it's often the first step in actually solving the problems that you seek to fix. However you choose to enrich your experience of a place, be it through building a recreation center, harvesting grapes, or playing pickup games of chess at the local cafe, always challenge yourself to try new things and keep learning. In this way, you'll find that you're not just exploring new places, but weaving a tapestry of life experience that is much richer and more intricate than you could have ever imagined while you were still at home. Vagabonding Profile, The Vagabonders of Pax Islamica Though it may be tempting to view vagabonding purely as a pastime of the industrialized West, long-term travel was for centuries a primarily Eastern art. Indeed, some of the most vivid personal accounts of vagabonding come from the 10th through the 15th centuries, when safe travel was possible within an Islamic empire that stretched from the Pillars of Hercules on the Atlantic to the Malayan archipelago of Southeast Asia. While Ibn Battuta was the most celebrated of these Arab travelers, we discussed him in chapter 6, men like Ibn Jubayr of Spain and al-Muqadisi of Jerusalem also wandered to the far corners of the Islamic world, gaining life experience along the way and earning their keep as teachers, lawyers, hawkers, bookbinders, papermakers, merchants, messengers, and pilgrims. Not all of these vagabonders were Muslim either. One of the most prolific travelers of the time of Pax Islamica was one Benjamin of Tudela, a Spanish rabbi whose 12th century adventures took him as far as the western border of China. In the Meadows of Gold, 10th century Muslim geographer Al-Masudi described the thirst for diverse experience that inspired the wanderers of this era. He who stays at home beside his hearth and is content with the information which he may acquire concerning his own region cannot be on the same level as one who divides his lifespan between different lands and spends his days journeying in search of precious and original knowledge. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 9 This is Anne Van Loen, a 43-year-old teacher from Seattle, Washington. We made it a point to volunteer whenever possible as we traveled. Working with kids at an after-school program in Peru, practicing English with high school students in Laos, volunteering full-time at an elephant sanctuary, these times allowed us to be part of something bigger than ourselves, to meet people and to participate in local communities. 
This is James Ulrich, a 34-year-old freelance travel writer from Seattle. Lots of establishments, ranging from host farms, lodges, B&Bs, and backpacker hostels, invite travelers to help out in exchange for accommodation and meals. The short-term guests pitch in some light labor while getting a great big dose of the local culture. Due to the seasonal nature of agriculture, helping out on a farm baling hay or picking grapes in a vineyard or picking berries in an orchard can be a great way to survive a summer abroad on a very low budget. Skills like agriculture, animal care, boat crewing, and carpentry are sought after in various pockets of the globe. Aside from the monetary savings, the opportunity to live with the locals and participate in their day-to-day life is well worth the work. This is Lavinia Spaulding, a 43-year-old writer, editor, and teacher from San Francisco. Traveling opened my eyes to the reality that anything, from a permanent island vacation to a totally wild and wacky life, is completely attainable. In my travels, I've met countless people with different experiences. People who have lived on a beach in Bali or Thailand or Greece for several years, or who have taught in Turkey or South America. The more I travel, the more travelers I meet, which means new options are constantly presenting themselves. As a result, my mind is always entertaining a hundred different possibilities. Quotes for Chapter 9 Paul Theroux from To the Ends of the Earth Travel is a creative act, not simply loafing and inviting your soul, but feeding on the imagination, accounting for each fresh wonder, memorizing and moving on. And the best landscapes, apparently dense or featureless, hold surprises if they are studied patiently, in the kind of discomfort one can savor afterward. A.R. Ammons from Corson's Inlet Scope eludes my grasp. There is no finality of vision. Tomorrow, a new walk is a new walk. Francis Galton from The Art of Travel Powerful men do not necessarily make the most eminent travelers. It is rather those who take the most interest in their work that succeed the best. As a huntsman says, it is the nose that gives speed to the hound. Kurt Vonnegut from Timequake Listen, we're here on Earth to fart around. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Paul Oster from Smoke People say that you have to travel to see the world. Sometimes I think that if you just stay in one place and keep your eyes open, you're going to see just about all that you can handle. Charles Kuralt from A Life on the Road. If you really want to learn about a country, work there. Pico Iyer, Why We Travel. We travel initially to lose ourselves, and we travel next to find ourselves. We travel to open our hearts and eyes and learn more about the world than our newspapers will accommodate. We travel to bring what little we can in our ignorance and knowledge to those parts of the globe whose riches are differently dispersed. And we travel, in essence, to become young fools again, to slow down and get taken in and fall in love once more. Tip Sheet, Chapter 9 Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for up-to-date resources on overseas work and volunteering. Chapter 10 Let your spirit grow. There's another story that comes from the ancient desert fathers of Egypt. In this tale, a monk named John the Dwarf decided one day that life in the monastery was too much work and didn't quite match up to his spiritual ideals. I should like to be free of all care, he confessed to his abbot, like the angels who do not work but ceaselessly commune with God. 
Taking his cloak and a bit of food, John the dwarf then went away into the desert. About a week later, in the middle of the night, the abbot heard a faint knock on the door of the monastery. Who is it? the abbot demanded. It is I, your brother, John the dwarf, came the meek reply. You must be confused, the abbot retorted wryly, leaving the door bolted, for John the dwarf has become an angel and no longer lives among men. The following morning, the abbot unlocked the monastery to find a distressed John the dwarf huddled on the stoop. Ah, it appears that you are a man after all, the clever abbot said, and that you must once again work in order to live. In seeking to find epiphany in some ill-conceived departure from reality, John the Dwarf was not the first person in history to make a spiritual fool of himself, and he certainly wasn't the last. Indeed, the modern travel scene in general has a notorious reputation for such half-baked spiritual foolery, as many wanderers tend to confuse simple exoticism with mystical revelation. The guru of the month seekers in India and the Jerusalem syndrome crackpots of the Holy Land are just a couple of vivid stereotypes from a long tradition of self-indulgent travel mysticism. Fortunately, embracing the spiritual side of travel doesn't require that you don a robe and lose your mind. What we know as personal travel, after all, is the historical legacy not of exploration or commerce, but of pilgrimage, the non-political, non-material quest for private discovery and growth. Indeed, regardless of whether or not you consider your vagabonding journey to be spiritual, self-motivated travel has always been intertwined with the personal workings of the soul. But on an even simpler level, heightened spiritual awareness is the natural result of your choice to put the material world in its place and hit the road for an extended time. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and your decision to enrich your life with time and experience, instead of more things, will invariably pay spiritual dividends. Travel, after all, is a form of asceticism, which, to quote Kathleen Norris, is a way of surrendering to reduce circumstances in a manner that enhances the whole person. It's a radical way of knowing exactly who, what, and where you are in defiance of those powerful forces in society that make us forget. Thus, travel compels you to discover your spiritual side by simple elimination. Without all the rituals, routines, and possessions that give your life meaning at home, you're forced to look for meaning within yourself. And, just as John the Dwarf had to work in order to live, this spiritual process is not always free of care. Indeed, if travel is a process that helps you find yourself, it's because it leaves you with nothing to hide behind. It yanks you out from the realm of rehearsed responses and dull comforts and forces you into the present. Here, in the fleeting moment, you are left to improvise, to come to terms with your raw, true self. As prosaic and practical as this process sounds, it's actually in keeping with time-honored spiritual traditions. Jesus, after all, taught that it's pointless to look to otherworldly realms for revelation because the kingdom of God is within you. The Buddha expressed enlightenment not as a mystical firestorm, but as a disassembling of the conditioned personality. The Ecclesiastes of the Hebrew tradition asserts that a live dog is better off than a dead lion because God favors what you do now. Islam asserts that the sacred is never separate from the secular and that the world itself has spiritual lessons to teach. In learning the spiritual lessons of travel, of course, you may discover that it's not always possible to share or express what you're experiencing. Religious traditions have given us certain words and metaphors to describe the numinous realm, but words are symbols, and symbols never resonate the same with everyone. Many people, for instance, saw Jack Kerouac's On the Road as a secular celebration of speed and freedom, but to Kerouac, the book was a spiritual diary. It was really a story about two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God, he wrote in a 1961 letter to Carol Brown, and we found him. 
I found him in the sky in Market Street, San Francisco, and Dean had God sweating out of his forehead the whole way. Traditional Catholics might question Kerouac's characterization of the divine, of course, but the discrepancy is more a matter of semantics than inspiration. Often, spirituality is best approached without specific lexicons or set formulas. Too frequently on the road, people seek the spiritual side of life in the same determined way they might join a gym. They want results, and they want them soon. Thus, the yoga camps of India, the meditation retreats of Thailand, and the evangelical group tours of Galilee sell out, literally and figuratively, to vacationers in search of instant spiritual gratification. In reality, there is just as much epiphany to be had in wandering lost through the alleyways of Varanasi, enduring diarrhea on the Bangkok to Surat Thani minibus, or playing games with children in the Nazareth town square. Moreover, spirituality is an ongoing process that deepens with the seasons, and those who travel the world hoping to get blinded by the light are often blind to the light that's all around them. At a certain level, then, spiritual expression requires the same kind of openness and realism that is required of vagabonding in general, particularly in culturally reversed situations, which can be found not only in distant Lhasa or Rishikesh, but in the near eastern confines of Jerusalem or Mount Athos. There is no God but reality, goes a saying attributed to a mythical Sufi sect. And blasphemous as this sounds, it is not a declaration of unbelief. Rather, it is a warning to avoid turning inspiration into fetish and tradition into dogma. It is an admonition to never reduce the spiritual realm to the narrow borders of your own perceptions, prejudices, and ideals. Indeed, if you travel long enough, you'll find that your spiritual revelations are invariably grounded in the everyday. A great little vignette of spiritual discovery comes from Joshua Geisler, an American musician I met in India. Though Josh originally traveled to India for its musical and mystical tradition, his very idealism is what initially kept him from growing as a musician. During his first few lessons with an Indian flute master, he would inquire only about the mystical side of the music. But as Josh told me in an email, the experienced teacher invariably steered the lesson back to the functional challenges of his art. But what about Tansen, I would ask? Is it really true that he could light a fire with his voice? With a chuckle, the master would answer, Why sing a raga when you could just light a match? Eventually, Josh came to realize that the flute master's very practicality, his faith in technical diligence, was what enhanced his capacity for true spiritual expression while playing music. Ultimately, then, discovering the sacred as you travel is not an abstract quest so much as a matter of perceiving, an honest awareness that neither requires blind faith nor embraces blind doubt. And, more often than not, the most singular experiences of travel come in not finding what you'd hoped to discover. In The Snow Leopard, thought by many to be the best travel book of the last century, there is ironic joy in the fact that Peter Matheson never sees a snow leopard during his adventure in the Himalayas. Thus, robbed of a climactic moment, Matheson leads us into the simple essence of his journey, the common miracles, the murmur of my friends at evening, the clay fires of smudgy juniper, the coarse, dull food, the hardship and simplicity, the contentment of doing one thing at a time. When I take my blue tin cup into my hand, that is all I do. Before you begin your travels, you might not see the spiritual significance of such seemingly mundane details. After all, a journey is a temporary diversion, and there would seem to be little reward in the common miracles it promises. That is, until you realize that life itself is kind of a journey. Vagabonding Profile, Annie Dillard A self-described wanderer with a background in theology and a penchant for quirky facts, 
Annie Dillard examines the realm of the spirit through the lens of nature. Born Annie Doak in 1945 in Pittsburgh, Dillard had a Salinger-esque childhood, studying her own urine under a microscope and reading on the road with the encouragement of her father, who himself once quit a job to travel down the Mississippi River. After suffering a near-fatal attack of pneumonia at age 25, Dillard decided that she needed to experience life more fully, so she spent four seasons living alone in the Virginia backwoods. The book she wrote about the experience, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which blends Christian spirituality with eccentric observations about the natural world, went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. In her writing, Dillard points out that curiosity about the world is the starting point for spiritual discovery and vice versa. What we know for starters is, here we are. This is our life, these are our lighted seasons, and then we die. In the meantime, in between time, we can see. The scales are fallen from our eyes, the cataracts are cut away, and we can work at making sense of the color patches we see in an effort to discover where we are. It's common sense. When you move in, you try to learn the neighborhood. Vagabonding Voices, Chapter 10 This is Derek Orth, a 28-year-old voice actor from Florida. To me, travel represents ecstasy. I don't mean ecstasy as simply intense happiness or joy. It's much more than that. Ecstasy, or ecstasis in Greek, originally meant to be or stand outside oneself, a removal to elsewhere. That's what travel is, both physically and philosophically. When I left Florida to go to Asia, I didn't just leave a geographical location. I also left the surroundings, routines, and people that informed me who I was. Scary, but surprisingly freeing. This is Jessica Urasik, a 31-year-old storyteller and designer from Michigan. Travel will challenge your well-worn assumptions and accumulated habits. It will shake up your boring old patterns, make you feel every raindrop and taste every bite of mango. It will inspire you again, kindling that lost flicker of creativity until new ideas start to boil and bubble from deep within. It will restore your sense of childlike wonder for what was already there. This is Powell Berger, a 50-year-old entrepreneur and mom from Kailua, Hawaii. I'm my best when we're traveling. I'm more open, more aware, more present. I still have emails and obligations and deadlines, but even on a bad day, when it's 100 degrees and there's no AC and there's laundry to be done, I know how incredibly lucky I am. If I can bring even a little of that back home with me, I make my world a slightly better place. Quotes for Chapter 10 Joseph Campbell from The Power of Myth People say that what we are all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think this is what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive. Annie Dillard from Pilgrim at Tinker Creek The world is wilder in all directions, more dangerous and bitter, more extravagant and bright. We are making hay when we should be making whoopee. We are raising tomatoes when we should be raising Cain and Lazarus. From the Kaushutaki Upanishad, It is not speech we should want to know. We should want to know the speaker. It is not things seen which we should want to know. We should want to know the seer. It is not sounds which we should want to know. We should know the hearer. It is not the mind which we should want to know. We should know the thinker. Rilke from Letters to a Young Poet. We must assume our existence as broadly as we in any way can. 
Everything, even the unheard of, must be possible in it. That is at bottom the only courage that is demanded of us, to have the courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter. Walt Whitman from Song of the Rolling Earth, Whoever you are, motion and reflection are especially for you. The divine ship sails the divine sea for you. Whoever you are, you are he or she for whom the earth is solid or liquid. You are he or she for whom the sun and moon hang in the sky. For none more than you are the present and the past. For none more than you is immortality. Annie Dillard, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Beauty and grace are performed whether or not we sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. Tip Sheet, Chapter 10. Please visit vagabonding.net slash resources for up-to-date resources about spiritual travel readings and sacred texts. Part 5. Coming Home. Chapter 11. Live the Story. Of all the adventures and challenges that wait on the vagabonding road, the most difficult can be the act of coming home. On a certain level, coming home will be a drag because it signals the end of all the fun, freedom, and serendipity that you enjoyed on the road. But on a less tangible level, returning home after a vivid experience overseas can be just plain weird and unsettling. Every aspect of home will look more or less like it did when you left, but it will feel completely different. In trying to make sense of this homecoming experience, people often quote T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. As inspiring as this sounds, however, knowing your home for the first time means that you'll feel like a stranger in a place that should feel familiar. Initially, you'll enjoy rediscovering all the little aspects of home that you missed in faraway lands, long hot showers, the latest movies in full Dolby sound, dinner and drinks at your favorite restaurants and hangouts, but after a few days of indulgence, you'll begin to feel a strange sensation of homesickness for the road. Your old friends will offer absolutely no help in this regard. As exciting and life-changing as your travel experiences were, your friends will rarely be able to relate because they don't share the values that took you out on the road in the first place. You may have shared your soul with a fellow traveler you'd known for two hours in Zambia, but for some reason you'll be unable to get your closest friends to break out of their standard conversation patterns and take an interest in your adventures. A vivid illustration of this social disparity comes from an American vagabonder, Jason Gasparro, who wrote me in an email, One of the most difficult things I experienced in my travels was trying to relate what I'd experienced to old friends and acquaintances who'd been at home the whole time I was gone. When I recounted how I got into a fight with a Javanese transvestite, swam with barracuda, or ate spicy dog with rice, they'd get a glazed look in their eyes. When I finished telling them these stories, there was little response. Wow, they'd say with weak enthusiasm. Then they'd tell me about what happened at the local pub and how they'd hooked up with Sally from college again. Here I thought I was missing out on so much when I was gone, but those reunions made me realize that I was a changed person. Encounters such as this will make you realize why travel should always be a personally motivated undertaking. Try as you might, you simply can't make the social rewards of travel match up to the private discoveries. In sharing your road experiences, then, remember to keep your story short and save the best bits for yourself. I swear I see what is better than to tell the best, wrote Walt Whitman. It is always to leave the best untold. Moreover, telling the story is not nearly as important as living the story. 
Indeed, your vagabonding experience need not be some quaint sandcastle that washes away when you return home. If travel truly is in the journey and not the destination, if travel really is an attitude of awareness and openness to new things, then any moment can be considered travel. Objects which are usually the motives of our travels are often overlooked and neglected if they lie under our eyes, wrote Pliny the Elder over 2,000 years ago. With this in mind, it's important to remember that your vagabonding attitude is not something you can turn off and on when it's convenient. Rather, it's an ongoing organic process that can be applied even as you unpack your bags and readjust to home. After all, hitting the road to get travel out of your system rarely works, so the best remedy upon returning home is to make travel a part of your system. One immediate reward of such an attitude will be how it instantly connects your home with the rest of the planet. Your travels, you will discover, have awakened you to parts of the world and awakened parts of the world within you. Experiences and observations that didn't quite make sense on the road will suddenly come into perspective as you once again become a part of your home community. International news about the regions you visited will resonate in a personal way, and you'll come to realize how the mass media can only offer a partial perspective on other places and cultures. As you continue to read, learn, and think about the places you once visited, you'll realize that your travels never fully end. Even in times of solitude at home, you'll feel less like an isolated individual than part of a greater community of people and places, near and far, past and future. As for the practical challenges of re-entry into your home life, moving in, finding a job, starting a routine, confront them all as new adventures. Rediscover your work and do it well. Redeploy your simplicity and make it pay out in free time. Emulate the best of people who themselves were at home when you met them on your travels. Pinpoint what you learned from them, hospitality, fun, reverence, integrity, and incorporate these things into your own life. Integrate the deliberate pace and fresh perspective that made your travel experience so vivid, and allow for unstructured time in your day-to-day -day home schedule. Don't let the vices you conquered on the road, fear, selfishness, vanity, prejudice, envy, creep back into your daily life. Explore your hometown as if it were an exotic land and take an interest in your neighbors as if they were exotic tribesmen. Keep things real and keep on learning.